Friends, I'm coming to you right now from a little beautiful campsite next to a river. And in fact, there was a, a woman and her dog that pulled in to the campsite next to us. And she was literally in a van down by the river. And it was beautiful to see the sunset and to feel the wind coming in with the cold air replacing the warm, muggy air. But here we are, and we're in the state of Missouri. Now, why that's interesting is because today's show is about something that was very important to at least one denomination in America, that is the Missouri Synod. In the 1970s, there was essentially a theological civil war within this church body. And it led to a great division. People got fired from the seminaries. Uh, families were really torn apart emotionally and intellectually. And a lot of it came down to something that was going on at the time. And that is, it was a litmus test applied to church bodies and uh, religious schools and individuals. And the litmus test was inerrancy. The idea that the Bible, in all of its factual teachings, is unalterably, absolutely correct. And some would have said at the time, well, that's not really the point of what the Bible is trying to convey. And even that was contentious at the time. We're going to take this show to address essentially one listener email, a listener email about that idea of biblical inerrancy, biblical infallibility. We're going to talk about the way in which whatever you think about this topic in terms of your own uh, religious commitments, whether you're an, an atheist who doesn't really think that the Bible holds any special revelation from the beyond, or if you're a traditional conservative Christian, uh, an evangelical who affirms biblical inerrancy, regardless of what you think about that as a theoretical statement, we're going to look at the ways in which talk about inerrancy and infallibility also plays into ways of teaching and ways of understanding authority within religious discourse and education. And it's not what you expect, I don't think. In the first section, we're going to talk with Stacy a little bit about her understanding of herself and her identification of her Enneagram type. Don't roll your eyes, or you can roll your eyes all you want, but uh, it's more than just a question of the Enneagram type. It's a question of how we find truth. And that then leads into the second segment where we dig right into the question of inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible and how that's sometimes used in positive or negative ways in education. Thanks for being with us. Let's go. Welcome, friends, to the Protect Your Noggin podcast. We offer lessons and outfoxing religious wolves so that we can all find deep peace and freedom. Go to our website at protectyournoggin.org where you'll learn how to be a part of the show, find show notes, and then also check out our other resources. Just so you know, we often address sensitive subjects that could bring up past traumas because we are not afraid to dig deep. But don't worry, we got this. It's interesting how much life changes in just short periods of time oh, it's sometimes. Crazy. Yes, I we were in Denver, it was what, almost like seventy degrees every single day. It felt pretty warm. Even higher. I was wearing a t shirt. Sometimes up up to eighty and then all of a sudden I found it originally from a fellow camper at a at the campsite that 
snow was coming in a couple in a few days, and so he a was going to frost. He was going to hightail it down to uh, Mexico. It was getting to get down to eight degrees or six degrees, and we weren't even up in the mountains anymore. Well, for the low, yeah, and then yeah, that, and then we were expecting snow and highs in the twenties. So we figured we better we better get to to warm, and so we were thinking of maybe revisiting our idea of heading over to Florida. So we're heading at least down to where it's warmer, just like the old timey right snowbirds. We'll see where where it takes us, but right now. So one of the things though that was quite interesting is we come from Denver. And we are seeing all sorts of signs for, what, CBD and cannabis and all this stuff or whatever. And then we cross over into Kansas, and suddenly the signs are very different. Cultural whiplash. It really was. It was, hell is real, or, you know, Jesus is real. God bless you, uh, Kansas. Kansas. But it wasn't like people were using the Bible on these billboards to uplift I don't think I really... Or to inspire... I don't think I saw any that were uplifting or inspiring in the same sense in that Not too many, it no. wasn't like there's hope. I didn't like, no. you know, I didn't. It's like judgment is real. You shouldn't have an abortion. You know, like it was just, it, it was just all, um, uh, all stuff that was almost kind of aggressively in my life as I'm just trying to drive down the road. And you could say, well, of course, these are the important messages. I guess I'm just telling you that if, if I were a person who didn't grow up in the church, and I was driving across country. If I wasn't a Christian, I was driving across country. It would seem like something that it, you wouldn't really catch anywhere else in the world outside of maybe uh, traditional Muslim places or uh, who knows. I, I'm not quite sure, but it's a really unique thing, you know, uh, ostentatious religiosity on the roadside. Yeah, so that's what this show is all about. <laughs> kind of, yeah. About, <laughs> about so. how do we use the Bible? You could say that that your religious texts are, are true, but then there's also another question. How do we use those true religious texts? And to what extent are they true? And what do we mean by them being true? And how do we find out if something is true? And it seems like the simplest of questions, but it really is something that I think is difficult for folks of a variety of uh, beliefs. I mean, think about, let's say, a progressive, uh, a progressive old mainline denomination pastor. Right. I'm not always sure, even as I'm chatting with, with uh, folks in that kind of world, what they mean by saying what they believe is true, where they get their sense of truth. Mm -hmm. right? On the other hand, there are fundamentalists that are very, very vocal about their confidence in the truth and their evidence for the truth. And yet it doesn't always seem that they even believe what they're, they're saying. Right. I think we're all kind of, and then you hear people confused sometimes with, with some deep convictions about very, have and have very different takes on it. Yeah. That's and a it, hard part. And it makes right? you wonder like, how do I know what the truth is? Right. Yeah, if people could be so divergent in their interpretations of, of their faith, the texts, and all be very, very convinced and all very certain, you know, how do we get there? Now, I will say this. We say that people sound certain or people posture as if they're mm -hmm. certain. But there really is a difference, I think, between folks that we've met that have a deep confidence and boldness in what they believe, where they recognize what I'm, what I'm saying is almost certainly true. But they don't need to convince us. Right. There's that. And then there's other folks that are really trying hard to convince us about a multi-level marketing scheme or um, some conspiracy theory or, mm -hmm. some, you know, where they're convinced because they've got these strong arguments, but it's almost like they're protesting too much. Like they're trying to defend something 
for themselves or to to uh, help their own hearts be at peace. Uh, well, yeah, it reminds me of sometimes when I'm going into you know store to buy something or whatever, and there's a salesperson. If they're trying to convince me of a certain say TV or a or a warranty plan, <laughs> yeah. I rather I would rather hear the details of why this one over that one, you know, compare and contrast kind of thing. And then I can make the decision of what I want. Right. But if, if he's just telling me or she is just explaining how much I need X, Y, or Z, I have a a kind of this like knee jerk reaction to distrust what's coming out of their mouths, even if it might be true, which is interesting. It's entirely possible that it's true. It's entirely possible that they know all the different products. And there are times I think you would say, that we could be at a uh, at a dealership or something where somebody says there are all these different models, but this particular one really fits what you need. What you're talking about, what you need. Yeah, and this if they can explain yeah. how that fits in, then I I definitely would respect that and then take that into consideration. And, and definitely, it's just it's that. No, I already know what you want. You need this. Mm-hmm. And they're not listening. And, yes. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. And sometimes, I think what you're saying is sometimes when people talk about religious ideas, religious truths, it sounds sometimes like they are being motivated by some... Some other force actually yeah. outside of them saying, this is what, you, here it is. This is what you have to believe. This is, this is how it is. Did you ever do door-to-door evangelism or street evangelism? Oh, when I was in high school, I was a part of that program. Oh. What, what program? There's a whole script, essentially, that we memorized. And me and another high school student from our youth group and our youth pastor would knock on people's doors. And I don't really know how they found the people. They might have been visitors from the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sometimes it's just you go neighborhood by neighborhood. Yeah. But so we might have done that. Or maybe, yeah, maybe somebody said, oh, there's, you know, here's a good neighborhood to try. And they, they thought you were Jehovah's Witnesses and you weren't, but you were still, well, <laughs> you're still hustling and something. When I was doing this, uh, we were invited in. I don't think we were ever turned away. So I think the meeting was set up and mm. we knew, I think that's why I believe it was a visitor at the church or something. And we, the first thing that we would say is if you were to die tonight, do you know where you would go? So you've got a real nice uh, setup for uh, an urgent pitch. <laughs> yeah, and then <laughs> yep. that was the yeah, first. That. that was the first point of discussion. Yeah, fear, fear. That's fear. interesting. But regardless, you're you're not necessarily geared up that that was something you wanted to do on a Thursday night. No, and that would that in theory horrifies me. I guess mm. I was just trying to make sure that I was doing the right thing. They told us we were supposed to do it. Mm. I, I never did this, but you know. <laughs> I did things like it. And I, and I was concerned for the people I wanted. I didn't want them to end up in hell. Right. But at the same time, as you're selling it, you're not saying like there's sometimes in life where you'd say, I have found something that is so life giving, so transformative. And that was you need, not, yeah, we could be selling, we could be selling, you know, Hey, you got to try this Enneagram thing out, or you've got to try beyond meat, bratwurst or something. I think, yeah. And rather than our personal stories, it really was fear tactics mm-hmm. that were, along the lines of the questioning. I said that this whole show really is about an answer, a long-winded answer, I suppose, to one listener email. Would you read that email for us? Absolutely. It says, Can viewing the Bible as infallible cause people to ignore their own gut sense of right and wrong, thereby setting them up to become victims? For instance, one is not supposed to question the Bible's account of God drowning everyone in a flood, 
or ordering the Israelites to commit genocide. If someone were to question the account, then they are considered outside the faith. Asking for a friend. God bless. Paul. Well, Paul's question is one that I didn't want to address this soon in the podcast. But since it came up, the more we thought about it, the more we realized this is actually a really important question. It's at the heart of what Protect Your Noggin is about. What matters is this part of the question that I really thought was insightful from, from Paul. What it's like to have the, the discourse cut off, to have the questions turned off. In other words, to ask any question that's a, would an otherwise imp- reasonable would in, question. Would imply your doubt and perhaps lack of faith. But more importantly, I think, insubordination. Mm. Right. So, so sure. Sometimes people have doubts. Sometimes people don't have doubts. Sometimes people are certain. Sometimes people are skeptical. What to me is interesting when it gets to our focus for the show, the, the focus on pedagogy, that is the way we teach. It's the theological equivalent of because I told you so. Mm-hmm. So, if a student, a young person asks, why would God flood the whole world? Or why are there, you know, these seemingly conflicting accounts of the resurrection or something? Because he can? Yeah, well, and, and so, so the moral part is because he can, and the, and the seeming discrepancies, uh, you're almost, if you want to bring those up, you're almost seen as a bad person for bringing up what your eyes saw, right? You saw something that seemed incongruous. To tell somebody when they first read it that there isn't a struggle there or that there isn't a tension there because we already know that the Bible is infallible and inerrant is bypassing the deeper interpretive imaginative conversation. And and for me to begin to own my own faith and why I believe what I believe. I'm just now accepting somebody else's belief right. if I don't understand. Yeah, you say, this is a puzzle. This is a mystery. What do I do about this? And you tell the kid or the... Or there's the no puzzle. New, this is yeah, the answer. This is very obvious and it's clear. And if you don't think it's clear, then there's something wrong with you, something immoral about you, something, uh, like I said, uh, rebellious about you or insubordinate. So this really gets to this question of not just whether the, the Bible, the Christian scriptures are true, but whether or not they're unfailingly true. So can you tease out a little bit the difference between inerrancy and infallibility? Right. So Paul's question asks about infallibility. And the, the problem is in many different groups, people will use these terms in different ways. Catholics have a version of it. Uh, in, uh, in the 70s, there was something called the Chicago Statement. And the Chicago Statement basically uh, in, in like 1978 set out the idea that the Bible was inerrant in the original uh, autographs. The autographs would be the documents that were written either by the, the original authors or by a scribe, you know, if they were being dictated. And then eventually these, these texts get sent around to the various Christian communities in, in the Mediterranean. And as they do, they're copying it down. And sometimes there are going to be minor uh, manuscript changes. Sometimes they're accidental. Sometimes they're meant to clarify things. Mm. We'll get to that in a second. But the idea is that in the Chicago Statement, you've got this idea that the autographs, the original writings, were inerrant. Whether what we have now is still inerrant through the providence or the, the guidance of God is another question. It goes even, even deeper into it. But essentially, inerrancy tends to be a more modern question, a question that really you didn't see as much in the, in the ancient world. Certainly, all through the centuries, there would, pe- there would be people that would take texts, literally, 
And uh, sometimes people would say, no, maybe there's an allegorical interpretation, like, say, Jonah and the whale or, or something. But inerrancy tends, in my mind, to refer to people saying that the factual details... Every single detail is absolutely how it was. So in the example of Jesus feeding the 5,000... Right. It wasn't 4,999. Right. Well, that's, it wasn't yeah. 5,050. It was right. actually 5,000. Is that, is that what that's you're That's basically to? the idea, right? So you're dealing with the facts, right? My personality very yeah. much wants to like Yeah, you want to know this. <laughs> now, the, exactly. the chances that there were precisely 5,000 people there is, would be so weird and uncanny that I, I'm not sure. Now, it's possible. It's possible. But I think that probably most. It's not the spirit of it. Well, even most conservative and narratist Christians would, I think, say, I think, as I think back in my life and chatting about this, they would say that 5,000 is accurate, but not according to the precise, you know, tabulations that we would use today, right? Was there a, was there a card reader? No, it was like 5,000 people. The irony here, or like the difficulty here, is that even conservative, even fundamentalist Christians recognize some things to be non-literal, like when Jesus says, I am the door. Jesus is the door, but he's not a literal door, right? right? Or even really weird things like the Apocalypse of John or, or the Book of Revelation, where it has these apocalyptic images that are that are understood to be true, but are also encoded in this other kind of apocalyptic well, language. Obviously, the, so the God of the universe, the whole entire thing, is trying to communicate in a way that we can understand it. And if we don't, we don't have we don't have the capacity. I don't believe to fully understand what God is, who he is. Even John Calvin said something like this, where he, he talked about this idea of divine accommodation. Divine accommodation for John Calvin was the idea that God used baby talk. You know, when you see a child and you say, hey, you know, mommy and daddy, they love each other and they've got magic in their hearts and that <laughs> sparks out a, a little fire of love that becomes babies and they come out of the mommy's tummy. Well, it's not in your, you know, it's not in your stomach. It's, you know, you got a womb and you got a uterus, right? And it's, sexual intercourse, not, you know, the magic. But at the same time, when you're talking to a little kid, this makes sense and it's not false, right? Now, I'm not saying that that's what the whole Bible is. You you figure this out on your own, friends. What I am saying is that the hard part here is that even people who affirm this idea of inerrancy would not necessarily say that every single statement is to be taken in a wooden sense. And they also recognize that there are manuscript you know, uh, alterations over the years, uh, for the most part. So, but inerrancy, generally speaking, is a response to modernism in in the late 19th century. It's a reaction against enlightenment thought, skeptical thought, certainly biblical criticism. As people started to understand after the enlightenment, they started to think about ways of reading the Bible in scientific ways, the way that you would read other classical texts like Socrates or something. Inerrancy then is really a, a involving a movement of reaction to modernism, reaction against higher criticism, and saying, no, the Bible is to be taken at its face value, right? So if Jesus walks on water, if Moses parts the Red Sea, we're going to say yes to these things. We're not going to think this is metaphor. This is not myth. That this actually happened. In, a, in the sense of myth being it false. Was an event. Yep. And so that's really what we're talking about. Inerrancy tends to be dealing with those kinds of questions. And then it plays into things like, is there a literal six-day creation? Six naturally understood days, 24-hour periods, 
roughly 7,000 years ago. That would be more of an inerrantist move. Now, the infallibility language sometimes means that, but the way I like to kind of distinguish them in at least evangelical thought is that infallibility tends to be a, a, a weaker term, if you mean, and I want to be very careful about this, infallibility is weaker in terms of the claim it's making about the factual truth of biblical texts, ancient biblical texts. What it's saying is it won't lead you wrong. So infallibility means there is truth about God and salvation and humanity, and that will never let you down. So, for instance, looking at, say, Genesis, uh, somebody who affirms infallibility of the Bible might say, this is a text that conveys religious and theological truth, that God created the world, that it is good. It comes out of God's pleasure rather than chaos and the defeat of, of a, say, a sea monster. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, if you can get behind the poetry or the, the mythological symbolism, you will find truth and it will never lead you astray. That the world is good, that God does affirm the world, right? Now, inerrancy goes farther and says, not only is this true theologically, it's true... And all of the facts. Kind of scientifically, yeah. So, that's. does that kind of make sense about the difference? Inerrancy yes, is kind absolutely. of factual. Infallibility is, it is a guide to, to faith and life. Now, one of the mm. things... Yes? Just a guide to faith? Oh, no, like an infallible guide. So it's a trustworthy... Right, that there is truth in there. There is a truth to be found. Not just a truth, but that it's true. Yes. But that I think, I guess what I'm saying is infallibility could allow you to read the Bible and say parts of this are mythological or poetic or something, but they are definitely true, Mm -hmm. right? Like, in a sense, Star Wars is true. But it didn't happen <laughs> right, in that right, sense, right? right. Now, There's, that would be pushing it maybe a little farther, but you, you get my point, right? Where the, the, Absolutely. The stories, the stories are true. The, ar- you know, the archetypes. The meaning. It, it, yeah. And, uh, and, it, and I think, though, one of the things that's interesting about this is, again, inerrancy tends to be related to these questions of science that didn't really come up a long time ago, <laughs> Right? right, like not in the same way that they have as we look at history, archaeology, geology, biology, and these sorts of things. Now, before we get into that, we're going to get deeper into this idea of inerrancy and sometimes the ways in which it can be difficult and in, indeed problematic in an educational setting to enforce it in an authoritarian way. Mm-hmm. Before we get there, I want us to talk about a little bit more uh, this idea of truth. And that kind of reflection Mm -hmm. on how we figure out whether something is true. And we want to do this through your journey in the last (laughs) week or so related to the Enneagram, right? right? Now, just to set this up, you used to identify yourself in one way uh, related to these types, these archetypes. And then you had a realization and you realized you were were mistaken about how you were operating in this Enneagram world. And we're going to get to that. But first, before we do... Could you refresh the memory, you know, if people heard a little bit of, uh, a little bit about this earlier on? What, what's the Enneagram all about? Right. So basically you have nine sort of archetypes of personalities or people that ex- explains their uh, motivations. So it's their fears. It's their wounds, if you will. Their passions. It's, yeah, their passions. How they cope with life. It's, it's a combination of nature, nurture, and then childhood wounds. And there's there's all sorts of depth 
to it and then it can <laughs> there's a lot you can explore within the enneagrams but on the basic level it, there's every personality type can also have healthy and unhealthy versions of it they can borrow from the personality types that are right next to them in the numbers the point is is that you can borrow from the personality types that are close by on the number scale right, so there from are nine one, numbers one nine. so you you could take a test online you can read the descriptions and, right you'll find your number Right. And then whatever that number is, there's also some nuance in terms of the health or unhealth. Correct. But then there's the idea that you might lean to the left or the right in terms of a number. So if you're a three, you might be a three with a two wing or you might be a three with a four wing. Right. Now, this will make more sense if you look up what these numbers mean, but it, it's... The idea is, get that. is that it it, com- it fills out the type. So it's not just cut and dry, like you're going to be right. completely, you know. Um, but one of the things that some people will feel like there's a strong tendency towards a whole different number. So they'll say, like, I'm a, so what if I was a, I'll go for myself, like six. I th- thought I was a six. And on my test, a lot of times I would come out quite high in the numbers on a, as a one. Mm-hmm. And... So, you know, I might be tempted to think, you know, in the beginning, like, well, maybe I have a one wing or something, because this is a very big part of my life. Right. And you can't have that. Um, and I think... It's what, not like you want it, to and the people don't let you. It's that that's not how... It's just not the, how the concept it actually works. works in the archetype. It's just, but what that can be is somehow a signal that one of those is obviously probably, you know, it's going to be you, but you might have borrowed from a different number, which is what I was doing. All right. So let's get to that. So you thought you were a six. What, what generally is a six about? Six is about loyalty. And, and security. They want, they want security. And so six is they, they want support and guidance. And they've also pretty much researched all of the worst case scenarios. (laughs) They're, they're prepared on Mm -hmm. all occasions. And again, for the security aspect of Mm -hmm. it. And both of your folks are sixes. That yes, so that's how they when they tested they they were both sixes pretty clearly and I and so I realized so when I took the test I originally was six as well but I realized that that I was borrowing from the 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 six way of being like I'm a one and the my one personality <laughs> that doesn't make sense okay so your parents are sixes and you you see that you are kind of acting like your parents in many cases. Mm-hmm. One of the things that happened is... Well, and I heard there was a teacher that basically said that in certain circumstances that you might take on sort of... You may not know your your true number, your true who you are because of certain life circumstances. And again, that's the nature versus nurture, maybe, perhaps. And when I realized, when I peeled back the layer of how... In my in in my household, I if I took on the the six part as then, a child, as a child, then and even as an adult later, until I realized what actually is my driving force is the one. But if I take on and borrow from that six, then I'll get in less trouble. Like I'll you know I've re- I can turn my attention to detail into making sure that I check out all worst case scenarios and avoid certain. Uh, reactions from my parents say and if we were having financial issues or whatever then I, you know i i would i would worry about it but i i would then try to give my parents some money to help them out which <laughs> they obviously like i this is what i internalized right but anyway but that's going to bring safety that's going to bring safety and security but what the listener needs to know if you don't know the the different types is that a one 
is interested in justice, fairness. They have a very clear sense of right and wrong that they also think that their version is the right way, even mm-hmm. though they could be misguided even sometimes, which is what the self-righteousness part was that we hinted on in the shadow work mm-hmm. uh character yeah so we we figured this out after that show but (laughs) going again to this so the one wants to be just and right and holy you want to do it right perfection the perfection that is not necessarily what a six wants a six is going to be a little bit more but they're also going to be a little bit more willing to be loyal to the leader right so it doesn't until they're not but yes yes but i mean but a six but a six is generally going to be predisposed towards finding safety by figuring out Right. You know, what, what, what they're supposed to do from this external thing. But the one is more interested in this kind of ultimate goodness, right? Yes. Whether or not they're right about it. Now, your case was in your attempt to want to be good, you then said, well, how do I be good? By I, borrowing By from borrowing my from parents. what my parents are because I want to be obedient. But it's not so much that you want to be obedient, you want to be good. And so I want to do the looking, right thing. You want and, to do the right thing, and they're telling me this is the right thing, and so I'm I'm believing it. Now, which, how does which? Yeah, a lot of it not? was. You right. know? <laughs> now, the thing that you learned from the teacher, though, is that sometimes the reason you can misidentify your your number when you don't feel like you have the ability to fully express who you are, and when you are looking at the external behaviors rather than the motivations. Yes, that's so, true. So Enneagrams are not really about how you act as much as why you act. Yes, what's in the core of you. And so how does this, how does this for instance, affect our relationship? Now, I'm a seven, and sevens are really interested in adventure, uh, going and, and seeing new things, new experiences. I'm trying to avoid f- uh, pain. Pain, yeah. So you're trying to avoid being bad. I'm right. trying to avoid pain. So, <laughs> so when you have complaints against me, I take it as I'm bad. Well, even go back farther, because that's a very one thing for you to say. For me as a seven, I'm often not really... Well, I mean, I might be complaining, but I'm, I'm crying to you. I'm saying, this thing is causing me pain. This thing that's happening in our lives is, is making me sad or, or, or making me anxious. Right, and I don't want that. Like, that makes me sad. Because when you hear it... I don't want to hurt you. I, I want to be good, and I, and I love you. I, yes, this is true. But when you hear it, you also judge yourself. You hear it as condemnation and judgment. Right. That's what I said. Yeah. That well, what you said is it makes you like feel I'm... sad. There's a difference, right? No, no, like in it, a way. But I'm somehow flawed as a human being That's that I part, can yeah. create this pain in you. And then it's very difficult for me because sometimes then I'll say, Here, here's this thing that's hurting me in the way we're acting together. And then you hear the judgment and you don't want to be bad. So now you're kind of upset. Right. Because you're bad and I'm judging you and you're judging yourself for being bad. And then there's a little bit of sometimes defensiveness or a counterpunch. And then we get into this negative, sometimes really difficult cycle, what we call a loop, of me then reemphasizing, no, I don't think you heard me. I'm just trying to tell you I'm in pain. And And I've heard (laughs) it and I'm I'm already feeling like the worst human being on this earth. So now I'm dumping on you But I also don't show my emotions. And you don't necessarily tell me, well, I'm sorry about that. I think I tell you because (laughs) I have so internalized the judgment of myself and I feel horrible. I don't think you feel bad at all. I think No, I feel absolutely horrible. And I even realized 
that I need to make sure that I vocalize to you that I do understand, I do feel your pain, that I, I rather than just internally judging myself for it and realizing right. how what an awful person I am that I did this, that I also need to share with you that I understand what I've done and how this action has hurt you, and I am sorry for that. And I'm looking for mercy. Now, this is really interesting because the one person, I think, really has a special relationship to Micah 6.8. So to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. So humility is there in the midst of it, but it's justice and mercy. Now the one, the value of the one, what the one brings to the, to the party is justice. And that's important. It's really it's important. an important piece. There's definitely ways that there are some things that are right and there are some things that are wrong and that's what we're our show is a lot about of you know saying these these ways in which people are sometimes being harmed in religious communities this isn't right and we have to speak up about it even if it's difficult or even if it ruffles feathers mm -hmm. but there is also a way in which this can turn it into judgment it'll be and, unhealthy yeah. and if i it's not it's not healthy for me to walk around telling everybody else how they're doing it wrong as much as for me to have compassion on them and let them learn and discover it for themselves. And now there are times where maybe I step in to stop a, a really egregious harm that's being done to somebody. Sure. I'm not saying that what I'm trying to say though, is I think since I know and it often involves like the little things in life, the best way to do it, mm -hmm. then I will sometimes say, Oh no, dude, like this, and then that really undermines that other person and they're learning how to do something. They don't think through it. They don't think through the process to get there themselves. And so if I'm not standing there the next time they're doing something, then it could be harmful. And in my case, or in the kids, we might start finding ourselves just doing what we need to do to avoid the pain or the, or, or the stop, condemnation. Or stopping from action, so inaction. It's a huge one. Sometimes we'll just kind of freeze up and not help pack up or not help cook because we're worried about doing it the wrong way. Or I might just come in and move things around after they've already been done. Which or like we go shopping, I'll, 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 buy, I'll buy a cabbage and then all of a sudden you have to go get a different cabbage. Well, I'll I buy want bowls. an organic one. I got the bowls, but the bowls weren't deep enough. It, but it makes me feel sometimes like I can't possibly I'm live sorry. up to your perfect. Well, don't, thank you. But the one is sometimes a perfectionist. Now, when we first read all the descriptions, I said, of course, you're a, you're a one. But then we took the test and we were looking at a lot of your behaviors. And so we went to the six. And also... I was at that at that time I was there was a lot going on and there was a lot of uh fear in our lives there was a yeah. lot of uh upheaval yeah and so, so you it, did need security at that I moment. did need yeah. security or that was at least something that was attractive well, Francis, and it was easy for me to fall back on to that because that's how I learned to cope with some very scary times as a kid right. you know where I, or at least what I thought was scary at the time right now for for purposes of understanding Mrs. Mallinson here, mm -hmm. Stacy, you, I would say, are really very similar in this way as a one to the uh, the, the mother of dragons from the mm. from the movie or from from the series uh, Game of Thrones. I spent my life in foreign lands. So many men have tried to kill me. I don't remember all their names. I have been sold like a brood mare. I've been shamed and betrayed 
raped and defiled. Do you know what kept me standing through all those years in exile? Faith. Not in any gods. Not in myths and legends. In myself. In Daenerys Targaryen. The world hadn't seen a dragon in centuries until my children were born. The Dothraki hadn't crossed the sea. Any sea. They did for me. I was born to rule the Seven Kingdoms. And I will. Mm-hmm. So if, if you saw this show, the, there's a little spoiler here. You, it's, what are you doing? Either don't watch it at all, or, <laughs> or you should skip, have already skip been forward done. about a five minutes. But basically... But yeah, just yeah, skip forward five minutes if you haven't seen the show. The, they all yeah. want to loyally follow her because she believes in the justice of, mm-hmm. of putting, getting them out of their hell that and, they're in. And for basically the whole time, I'm always on her team. I'm thinking, this is the person to follow. And precisely because she senses that she has the just cause, when somebody is acting... Uh, unjustly then she might react strongly because this is the only right way to be what is what is the negative emotion that happens when you get backed into a corner if you're a one anger and and when it's really bad it can be wrath yeah and so she and and you'll have to watch the show but she does some things towards the end where she goes one personality bad one the one personality type when it becomes very unhealthy it can then turn into the unhealthy version of a four personality but what that would mean is that then there there's a belief that almost there's like no hope for the justice that I had envisioned and then it's all, it's hopeless. You burn it all down. And then just burn it all down. And sometimes we'll do this in a relationship where you, you'll, you'll say, oh, it's hopeless. Like, so it's we hopeless, have a, forget it. Like, and then you, you walk off or whatever. And, and yes, I, and I realize like, okay, so that's not the healthy way to deal with it. And that's when I'm being very unhealthy. Another way though, that I think, a, a less healthy way of dealing with situations was illustrated by our dog Bindi at the dog park. We were in Kansas and it was mm. a great, it was a great dog park in terms of it was vast and there are all these dogs mm. running around for the first time in ever. Yeah. I, I, Bindi loves people and people love Bindi and, and same with other dogs. She's been, she's been on the, you know, the, the dog beach and Huntington beach with all sorts of, I mean, you're talking like pit bulls and chihuahuas and every... All very well socialized. You even know? Great Danes, you know, yep. like all sorts of mix of, of, mm-hmm. of dogs that she's interacted with. And we never saw her react this way to the, a dog that was... I mean, usually when she feels that she's being overpowered, she'll do the either... I'm going to just lay down. Yeah, she's you know, submissive. She just gets very submissive. Sometimes, you know, even belly up if it's, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. She can make herself very vulnerable and just say, no, you know, and I'm done. This one, for some reason, it didn't invoke that submissive reaction instead. It crossed her boundaries. She just tried to get as mean as she could. And she had this, like, you know, a look of little terror in her eyes and she put her little paws up and like spread them out real big. Like she's she trying the to opposite make of... <laughs> herself look big, but then it actually kind of showcased how small she was. It made me love her so much, but she's so cute. She's like, yeah, yeah. But she was and it, shouting and screaming and trying to be angry and mean, but it wasn't, 
it just wasn't working because then there was another time when somebody came along and they were walking by and vagrant right and and she had a free camping site it was it was funny because she was on a leash she was on a leash that actually accidentally got free and so she was like getting closer and closer and but like getting her very confident and scared yeah and it's funny because i feel like there was a a, an extra confidence in her that she had because she was like i'm being restrained here or else i would give it to you right now but she didn't realize she wasn't restrained (laughs) so she would just get closer and closer and this poor guy is like Mm. That is a scary dog. Yeah, you know? he said but she, he said she could rip comp- the throat out of a cougar. I'm thinking, no, she can't even really <laughs> deal with some medium-sized beagles. But at the same time, there are times we all find ourselves in this spot where we, we find this extraordinary energy and power. And then other times we're surprised at ourselves at how afraid we are. Well, here she was. She was afraid. Yes. And she started to do things that would mimic what she thought in a certain sense would would be scary or right. uh you know make her look bigger and more powerful but it just showed her weakness and it kind of seems to me that that was fear. that was kind of like your false six in that there was this kind of this sense of trying to to scare off the world but mm-hmm. it's not quite working mm-hmm. but you know it's loud mm-hmm. and that the the other side though once you were able to understand what you think now as being a one is really your motivation in the last well, few days, it's been very helpful for our discussion of, of the dynamic between our, our two selves. And I, I wrote a little poem. I said, uh, she is the Tao. I am the 10,000 things that dances around her. Now, that sounds both very, I hope that sounds romantic. <laughs> it was like a short yeah, poem, you know, very was, last night. Because what it, but what it helped me realize is that the, the connection between us, me as a seven, I am... I am kind of a spaz. I'm, I'm, I'm running about and exploring all these things, but I need to keep my center. And so I realized that one of the things that for all of the ways we see the world differently and fight, one of the things that's very, very helpful about a relationship is you are this now understanding the one you're this kind of anchor. And then this keeps me in orbit. There's a, there's a way in which maybe this, this fits with the patterns of, let's say, uh, foraging or uh, hunting for edible mushrooms when we were in Seattle. Right, where I I will go through and and look for in in the detail and I'll find some maybe that you'll miss, but you'll go through the bigger picture and say, okay, here's here's an area where I should, you know, maybe find this type of mushroom. So I'm just running all over the forest and you're kind of doing a button hook move and you're focused in on a spot and you're going to, to pick up those things that I missed on the other hand, I will sometimes be able to go out and and find a whole field of chanterelles or. And morels. I'll get too caught. Yeah, I'll get too caught up in looking in the details of it all that I'll you know I won't maybe get to that field if I don't move along a little faster. But when we're healthy, we're working together in a nice symbiotic way, right? And this is this is balancing, right? Now, and it, there's two things actually I've, I learned though with the with the enneagrams and the ones, is that the one really felt right, mm-hmm. whereas. With the six, it wasn't quite resonating and I wasn't quite understanding our relationship to each other when I was misidentifying myself. And then when I understood what was going on with the one, being a one, then I realized more identifying with the motivations of it all that this, like, okay, yes, this is absolutely, it just felt so right. It just felt like this is, this is definitely the answer. Especially since we had had in the past, come up with metaphors or images that help us to think about 
these dynamics of a relationship in in a book about sexual ethics i tell the story about this idea in our family of the stacy jerk chain would you mind maybe sharing with the dear listener what what that's about well basically you may so as we are about to head out the door there's inevitably something that i remember that i forget it's almost like i need before I go out the door, I've got to figure, or as I'm going out the door, I've got to figure out what is it that one thing that I'm missing. And then I realize, okay, there's always going to be something. I can find something, and I usually do. And I'm like, wait a minute, and i got to go back in and get X, Y, or Z. Now, you I'm say not inevitably. trying to do You say it. inevitably. It is inevitable. It <laughs> almost is every single time we're five feet out the door. And I'm not trying to do it. Back. I just, I'm like, what am I missing here? I've got to be missing something. And then I'll, as I scan my brain, I'll find it. And... You know, perhaps I could have lived without it during that day. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes it's my phone or, you know, and, and I, do I really need my phone everywhere I go? No, probably not. Sometimes it's good to have. <laughs> now, the reason I call this the jerk chain is if you've ever seen that dog in somebody's yard that's on a long line that's tied to a tree or anchored <laughs> into the ground, it's and running. It's like, oh, so excited. Around, it's, a, it's, a, it's a squirrel and or a visitor. And you just see that dog kind of jumping and midair gets yanked back once it hits hits the so edge. You're all, and that, so you're all rearing to go. You're all rearing to go. You're waiting for your, your center person, <laughs> the one mm. you're going to dance around, right? You're waiting for me to then let's move forward here. And then instead I like pull you back. And if I see as you as holding me back, then I get deeply distressed and get agitated and irritable. And I'm mm-hmm. saying, come on, let's go. And then you feel like I'm judging you. So then now you're mad at me because I'm telling you. I mean, this is pretty much every time we move or go on a road trip, we fight terribly because I'm desperately excited to get on the road trip and you are really making sure that we have everything perfectly we need. packed. Mm-hmm. And and the, the, the flip side, though, is when we're healthy – uh, it's more like a tetherball, right? Like you're the pole. That's why I'm saying I'm I'm able to dance around it, and I'm not lost. Well, and usually because you're you give able, me a center of gravity, and usually you're able to ask for things, and I have it. And yeah, it's, it's right great. There. We yeah, very rarely have to go right. to the store to get right. So I do stuff. rely on that. I do rely on that as long as like the expectations and my impatience and so forth are taken care of. Now, there's another thing yeah. I learned uh, with with one personality type is I do have a very strong sense of what's right and wrong. And sometimes I can feel, even if I know that something, if if I see somebody doing it wrong, then I may feel tempted to share that with them or stop them from doing X, Y, or Z. And sometimes with, sometimes with self-righteous indignation, which is, which is where it it comes out as more negative judgment. Right. And then I realized if, if it is true and right, I, I don't have, I don't have to make it come to be. Mm-hmm. Why, do, why do you think the Enneagrams are helpful? The Enneagrams, by diving in a little bit deeper into what are my motivations, what are my passions, and how do I react to fear, then it, they're, to me, it, like I can understand it better so that I can avoid the pitfalls that I might normally fall into. That Negative it, thoughts for yourself and others. Yes, and, 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 and break patterns that I've learned to cope, which haven't necessarily always been the, the healthiest for me or those around me. So by recognizing the source of it and, and why it's there, 
I, I don't have to just judge myself for it. I don't have to, I can have compassion on it mm-hmm. because I recognize that this is something that is real for me, but then I put it in perspective. Mm-hmm. And, and we were talking about this idea of the difference be- between discernment and judgment. Discernment being recognizing the facts with deep compassion and judgment being condemnation with contempt. So as you look at yourself as somebody who wants perfection or wants to be good and right, mm-hmm. then sometimes when you think that you're off, you're really hard on yourself. In fact, what they say about Enneagram once is your worst critic, worst inner critic, very, very judgmental towards themselves. And so it's not the, hypocritical yeah. in the same sense that I right. first apply the judgment probably even stronger to myself. And then what I do allow to eke out of me and judgment towards others is a more tame version than what I've already, you know, mm-hmm. put myself through often. And this is why I think people fear the Enneagram because you have to recognize you, you end up having to face some difficult aspects of yourself and stuff that you probably have been hiding from or, or don't want to admit. And at least for me, but then I realize when I can face it, then I have, I have language for it mm-hmm. so that I can even explain to you what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, your faults come out. Yeah. And also though, your faults come out, but also people are afraid to be able to look at those things and also have compassion on them and say, but, but that's just how I am. So for instance, with me, I'm, I'm, you know, a spaz, I say that's, that sounds very judgmental, I suppose, but I'm, but I'm not always interested in putting closure on projects and I've got a bunch of things going at, at once. That's how I tend to operate. Because you, because you see it as closing a door and then maybe perhaps an adventure that mm-hmm. would be behind that door. Now, you could use it against me. You could weaponize the Enneagram and say, well, you're just being a seven. You can never get things done. But generally speaking, I'll say, if you recognize what makes me tick and we both understand this, this is going to be helpful for both of us. Now, again... The the other reason people fear the the Enneagram is that people, I think, want to say that the way they see the world is the only way to see the world. That's true, yes. <laughs> and for a one, that's the right way to see the world sometimes. Yeah. But, <laughs> but it but, is. And so what drives one person isn't what necessarily is going to drive somebody else. There's different motivations and there's different ways of reacting to situations. And if you understand this, you'll be more able to interact with people. It's it's actually, I don't and want if, to say for poker, but for, like, in poker, for instance, if if you think that everyone's trying to make money, you might misread what they're doing. Yeah. Sometimes people in poker are trying to bully you. Sometimes they're just having an extreme experience. Sometimes they want to make money. Sometimes they want to play for a long time. And if you sometimes, want to win a poker... Yeah, you, by an extreme experience, you probably mean like even just the thrill, the yeah. thrill of either getting away with, you know, these terrible cards and turning it yeah. into, yes. Yeah, like, Sometimes people want to bluff to get the pot. Sometimes they want to bluff because the they want it. to have the thrill of maybe losing money that, you know, on this risk. And so once you figure out what makes somebody tick, and once you understand what makes you tick, you're going to be a better poker player. This isn't a podcast about poker, friends. But if you think about that as this game that you play with other people in your life, these relationships, it's really, really helpful. But it, if you're not willing to recognize what it is that is motivating you or the or what you're afraid of, it comes out. It really does. And yeah. you're going to spend your whole life, it, 
running from it. Yep. And you're going to be inefficient and you're going to be surprised why you're always coming up short on something. Right. And it, and it, it's as scary as it might be to explore what that is. It's so freeing when you finally do come to that understanding and that realization and it, it helps you to then move past it. Otherwise yeah. the whole time, that's all you, you, by not, by trying not to focus on something, it actually kind of becomes the focus of your life. We were with some friends in, in Denver and we realized that there's a danger in talking about Enneagrams without having the time to go through it and really process what it means because people tend to be very often sad about their number <laughs> and they always see it as bad and they always ask, is that bad? Is well, that number bad? But sevens don't usually. No, the only people that don't care is seven. Like, oh yeah, I'm a seven. I'm crazy. Yay, I love it. I love right, party time. <laughs> but other people might say, you know, that revelation about themselves is upsetting to them. And it's really close to home. And people could use it against each other. You could say, oh, you're just being a six and uh, you know, whatever. Right, because it's also because of your fears and motivations then, then yeah, then it, it can get really at the, what is at the core of you and it can be a real quick little statement like, don't do that because you're, you know, um, it, it's kind of, it's almost like a, when you put a name to somebody when you say, oh, you're acting like so-and-so and you actually ascribe it's a name worst. to it. If I say <laughs> somebody's being like their sister, it's almost always, oh, you're being like your sister. That's almost the worst thing you could ever say to somebody, even if they love their sister. <laughs> right. For some reason. Like, whatever yeah. that is. Anyway. You've labeled like, somebody. <laughs> yeah. Now, so, so in all of this, we ask, well, now, wait a minute. We're really kind of digging these Enneagrams. It's helpful. Why do we believe it's true? I just know it. I know it to the core, at least for what the description said about my personality. And, and, and I know what drives me. Mm -hmm. I know what scares me if I'm really looking at it. And, and it makes all the sense. It just all of a sudden sheds light. It illumines everything. And you say, ah, now, now I've got a language for this. And now I know what to work with. <laughs> I don't need to sit there and spend 25 minutes trying to insist that you're a one and try to prove to you that you're a one. And you can't label somebody else, actually. No, that's definitely bad. But in, in terms but, of... But also, because, in, and again, I might act like a six, like we talked about, mm. but you don't necessarily know my inner motivations, right. my inner fear, what's driving that. But once you explained to me how this was working, I said, well, of course that's right. Mm-hmm. Once you said, wait a minute, I'm not a six, I'm a one. Oh, well, now that just made all the sense in the world. And, yes. you, and, it, and, and there it, was it this... drove it home for you, too. You just breathe deeper. It explains so much. Now, there are times when this can go wrong. But this is what we're trying to get to, friends. There's a kind of test for truth that is hard to, hard to put into epistemological formality. That is, it sounds like, it sounds like it's underappreciating philosophy and logic, but I, I don't think so. I think there are times in which something is presented and it's either going to ring true or it's not going to ring true. And uh, my favorite is throughout the Tao Te Ching, Lao Tzu every once in a while will say, how do I know these things to be so? Like this. And he just his kind of, imagine he's putting his arms out saying like, hey, what do you want me to say? Is. It just is. I, I, I see an example of what we're talking about that's easy for me to understand at least is the idea of gravity. Like, I don't have to, gravity just is. I'm standing here on this earth. When I heard the concept of gravity, I'm like, yes, this is what's happening. This absolutely makes sense. Now, if I don't have to defend it. Now, I guess I could, you know, drop a ball or whatever and <laughs> let it fall. Right. I don't know. But if somebody, if somebody doesn't 
think that there's gravity, I, I'd be like, hmm, and I'll have compassion on them because they must be very tormented, right? They probably can't like recognize any, a confused. anything. I might spend just a few minutes trying to see where we're going wrong here, but eventually I might just walk away from that conversation because we're not really going anywhere. I don't... Theoretical physicists, please keep doing your work. We understand that <laughs> there are ways in which the theories that we use to explain gravity are complicated and, and maybe we have to revise how it works, but the reality of gravity is this reality as we experience it. And so if you don't think that you know, when you jump off a cliff, you're going to hit the Go, ground. Well, <laughs> and instead you're going to fly. <laughs> sorry, right? I mean, you know, you're going to have to learn that. But what we're talking about, though, is kind of, again, back to, to Lao Tzu, he talks about water. Water goes low, mm-hmm. but it, it, can, it can destroy it's castles. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very, very mm-hmm. powerful by being in tune with these natural physical forces. And very often religious people spend most of their time trying to create very contorted, difficult ways of describing and explaining their world so that everything fits. But they're always working really hard at it. The truth is not a puzzle to figure out. It's actually a gift to receive. There's certainly puzzles to figure out, and that's fun. You like puzzles, but you're exactly right. And if somebody denies it, we have this tendency to want to forcibly you know, shake them or punch them or splash cold water on them and say, come to your senses. And that doesn't work. No. And it makes us stressed out all the time. Right. In many ways, I think this is something that, that got me when I was in high school. I would walk around. I, I wouldn't wear shoes. I'd have a little Ensenada hat that I got, leather hat, an acoustic guitar. I'd skip class, and I'd just go around asking if I could convince people in 15 minutes that Christianity was true. And I had my, my 15-minute <laughs> spiel with, with my arguments, my philosophical arguments, many of which I think were strong. But first of all, it didn't work. Nobody would come you know, to church like, with me. No. Fine, that's great. You know, but it wouldn't go any further than that, right? It wouldn't be like, oh, now I, now I see the, right, the, the light. And here, how, how do I learn more about this? Did you ever have that answer? No. Yeah. No, but there were times when there would be a certain kind of peace or strength or courage that you in have. my life that somebody said, now, where do you get that? Yeah, how'd you, how'd you know, yeah, say, how'd you it, find that? Or, or, or can you show me how to get there? Mm-hmm. And that was a whole different conversation. But there's this really interesting line in the Tao Te Ching where Lao Tzu says, no one can contend with the sage because the sage does not have to contend. I was thinking that so much of religious conversation is is uninteresting, misses the point, and is petty and divisive and spiteful and angry. And all of this differs to me from this image of a solid rock mountain face. Mm. Think about like in Boulder, the, the those those sheer beautiful uh, foothills, mm-hmm. just ancient hard rock. And I wrote this down. I said, look for a truth that is like a solid granite mountain face. Let all fragile constructs dash to pieces against it. You're looking for something that you lean into like a rock. And that's what truth is like. And it's unwavering. Sometimes it is really hard to get to the truth. We've got cognitive biases. We've Mm -hmm. got our selfish motivations. But friends, what we're trying to say is that the, one of the reasons we like Enneagrams is because we leaned on it 
and it felt solid. Mm -hmm. It felt like there was something here that helped us. And maybe we can be convinced otherwise and we can always be wrong. We're humble in this. But, but we sense something that rang totally true. Absolutely. And it was healing. Mm -hmm. It worked. It was helpful to us. If whatever weird cult or multi-level marketing scheme or uh, weird click you're in doesn't feel like it's got that solidity and truth, if it feels like you're spending most of your time trying to concoct a way for you to deal with the cognitive dissonance that your ideology is presenting you, if it feels like over and over again something just isn't right, it doesn't bring you life, it doesn't help you breathe deeply, that's a sign that you might be, del- might be deluded. Right. I remember when we were in the Mojave Desert, we were sitting at 11 at night with our little toesies in the water <laughs> underneath the beautiful stars. It was amazing how much we could see on the Colorado River free camping and this was still 110 degrees probably like 90 degrees at night we were just so hot in the camper and our generator it it was too hot really to even run that it it just was done and and then the second we turn off our air conditioner it just it doesn't matter for opening up the windows or whatever so we were like you know let's go ahead and just cool off and we spent a lot of the night and we (laughs) we brought the dog with us so that she could kind of float around and it was beautiful absolutely and i did something that this is weird i've been in churches for a long time i've been a professor i've worked in church related operations did stuff in church services i've prayed but in a weird sense i would say i prayed for real for basically the first time in my life when i was sitting there in that in that river and i prayed in a way i prayed and it was i have to tell you it was terrifying it was terrifying because i was actually asking the ultimate God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So God, if, if you're there, I'm, I'm actually ready now to have a real conversation. And there's two things I thought about this. One, I was scared. I was scared. Was I going to call upon a deity or a being like Molech or the devil or something that was going to deceive me? I was ready to actually pray, actually open up to reality. I realized that very often I pre- pretend to pray. It was earnest enough, like, you know, hey, you know, I really hope so-and-so gets better from their illness or, you know, forgive me for my sins or whatever. I mean, I've, I've tried to pray. I was almost like I believed that I was believing or I was praying that I could pray. Mm-hmm. But for the first time, I just was there, kind of in the desert, stripped down of all the other pretenses, not doing it for anybody else, not praying before dinner. At a, so what did you find? I had an answer. It wasn't, a, it wasn't an audible answer. It was just truth showed up. Mm. I just immediately saw what was already there. I did not have a vision. I did not see angels in the sky. I saw the actual world around me. It was as if I had been staring at the stars and the palm trees and the water splashing by and the rocks on the, you know, on the horizon, these, these mountains. Mm-hmm. I had seen it, but I was deluded and wasn't able to really see it for what it was. And in a certain sense, the best way I could describe it is like in the book of Job, where where God finally shows up at the end of the book of Job and says, well, let me show you what creation looks mm. like. And I saw the vastness for the first time. I'm sitting here on this rock and I'm looking up and there's nothing between me and the window to this vast, vast 
galaxy that we're floating through. Hmm. And I realized, well, well, here we are. Here we are. And there's, there's more to it, but I realized, and this is the key thing, that God isn't some little wizard on a, on a cloud, right? right? This, this construct kind of what, what Freud would say is this, this imagined old gray haired guy that's counting how many times we do something naughty. Mm -hmm. Looking over your shoulder. Yep. But there was a reality and a truth that was like, deeper, like a lion's roar. Hmm. It was the universe just, just in a beautiful, but terrifying, awe inspiring way. It's like roar open your eyes. Mm -hmm. You're just right in the midst of it. Here is eternity. You're right in the midst of it. Here is ultimate reality right in the midst of it. But here's the key. There was no inference, no philosophical logic, no inference. It was just an immediate realization of something, of my connectedness to the world, of the, the vastness of mm -hmm. the world. It was like I was in a cartoon and then I, opened my eyes up to what was real. Now, kind of an interesting mystical experience in the desert happens on occasion. Jesus goes out to the desert. John the Baptist hung out in the desert. I recommend it, friends. Go out <laughs> to the desert, lay things bare. But it reminded me of something. So this idea of the rock, what I mean is there's a kind of truth that is so powerfully reliable. Mm -hmm. And the only problem that we have is that we, that we want to create our own like and we throw a whole bunch it. of other layers or other things on top of it, right? We create weird little, you know, machines and different things that we're going to rest on. But there's a way in which what we really just need to do is set our foot on the rock. And then my thought went to T.S. Eliot. T.S. Eliot has this poem called The Choruses from the Rock. And I like that because it's, it's kind of about the church being the rock, Christ being the rock of the church, Peter. I, I'm not sure exactly where he's going with that, but I was going to kind of dig into that. Then I realized that what was going on in the desert there had something to do with an Allen Ginsberg song. Now, can I tell you about this Allen Ginsberg song? Absolutely. Bob Dylan and a cast of characters at one point were traveling around the country in this kind of almost like old-timey show with a lot of different acts that would be a part of it. And Bob Dylan was wearing kind of white makeup at the time and the weird hat. And... As they would travel around, early on, Allen Ginsberg, the poet who wrote Howl, came along too. And he would sometimes do his poetry. He was a friend of Jack Kerouac, a beat poet, really a precursor to the hippies, the, uh, that, that, like the Dharma bums, mm -hmm. the, um, the beat poets, right? Well, so he, here's this guy. I would say, God bless Bob Dylan. I like Bob Dylan's music. But Bob Dylan and Ginsberg, when you think about it, they're, they're really in different categories in terms of the poetry. Ginsburg is one of the extra, just extraordinarily profound poets. Love him or hate him, think he's a little weird, think, he, think he's a little too crass. There's something very significant about Ginsburg. Mm -hmm. But he's kind of a has-been in the sense of the pop world. Mm. As he's coming along, as they're, as they're traveling they all around. They to hear from Bob Dylan. Well, Bob Dylan and whatever new mm -hmm. pop artist was part of the lineup and eventually they bumped Ginsburg from the lineup mm. and he ended up just kind of hanging out with them and being a part of the scene. Maybe he would read one poem or something, but he would by and large get sidelined for other acts. Nonetheless, he was still kind of hanging out with them and he writes this song. And I want to say that it's one of the most spiritually and philosophically interesting 
pop songs. Mm. If you want to, I mean, it's not really pop at all. I don't even think it. But, <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't think there's no, a lot of people that wouldn't. But I mean, from from, from pop that, culture, you, you know. Yeah. And nobody knows it. I mean, I talk to people about it all the time. Nobody knows what I'm talking about. So it wasn't a hit or anything like this. But it was something that he wrote, I think, kind of impromptu, as all of these all of these famous people, you know, I think you got Janis Joplin and, you know, all these different characters with big egos, Mm -hmm. a lot of panic about being great Mm. and being somebody and being successful and being poetic and Mm -hmm. being deep and all this and being artistic. They're driving, they're riding along on the train, probably some of them hung over, some of them stoned, but they're riding down and Ginsburg wrote him a lullaby mantra, basically. And the song is about uh, laying down the burden of all this performance. And I also, for me, I kind of envision sort of you have, you go through life with these various security blankets yeah. that you hold on to. And you realize like there's a lot of work that is involved in holding on to these security blankets. But yeah. if you could just like let them go and lay them down. Yeah. Is your religion this performance that you've created? Like you're a circus performer, mm-hmm. is your is your art, is your writing, is your music, is it is it a performance or is it a genuine Just shout for joy, expression or groan? of who you yeah. are, and and coming to life mm-hmm. through what you're doing, or and, is it or is it something a persona that you're playing? Uh, I don't know to get worth or to yeah. have success or okay, you're on it because this is exactly why Ginsburg was great because. What what Ginsburg did was he came to this one realization that you needed to write with an authentic voice. Don't write as if you're being a poet. Mm-hmm. Be you. And then that's why pe- people like you. Which is often why, even with some of the music or whatever, when people are depressed, mm-hmm. I mean, some of the best music comes out because they're just being raw yeah. with their feelings, they're right? They're not trying they're not to look trying depressed. To... They just are what they are. Right? <laughs> but if they really are in a, a rough patch, it will come through in their music. Right. And so finding your voice, not trying to look like you're a writer, but just write. Mm-hmm. And write as if you're speaking to your best friend or as he says, writing as if your dad's not going to read it. Mm. <laughs> you know, that, mm. that, that, that uh, super ego judging. Honest, authentic. Now, to, to be fair, then Allen Ginsberg has a lot of crass poetry because he's just ex- exercising that. And sometimes maybe aesthetically we would say today, all right, we get that point. Mm. In, in his day, pushing those boundaries had more of a, of a weight than it would today. He, you know is pushing things in a way that maybe today isn't as outrageous and now it just seems kind of self-indulgent, but mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. Finding that real voice was important to him. Now, the song is called Lay Down Your Mountain. Lay Down YR, Lay Down Your Mountain, if you're going to try to find it. Not easy to find. It is on uh, iTunes where I uh, was able to see it. And there's a couple different versions of it. But again, it's like a, this lullaby that he's singing to all these people. And I, and I want to play it uh, at least a, a couple... Uh, couple stanzas of it because first of all i want you to see that if you could if you can get to where he's at here if you can understand what he's saying you will save yourself so much pain yeah (laughs) i know it sounds scary now the reason i used to not like the song is because i loved a lot about it It says "Lay, lay down your mountain lay down he says you know hey alchemists lay it down so in other words you guys he's not being a judgy goody two shoes he's saying don't rely too much on the drugs don't rely on your yeah your camera yeah your camera sometimes like looking 
out the window mm-hmm. right now at the beauty. Mm-hmm. You know, it, you don't want to see all of your life just through the the camera trying to capture it when you're you're missing what's right in front of you. And he says this line. Listen for it. Lay down your practice precisely. Lay down your practice precisely. Mm-hmm. They're practicing their songs and they want to get it right. And they're so worried. And he's saying, lay it all down. But he's also trying to get them to go to sleep. And he's not saying that those things aren't important. Mm-hmm. He's saying that sometimes you just need to rest. Mm-hmm. And this is certainly in- important, I think, for you and me and mm-hmm. our personality mm-hmm. types to sometimes have, for me, I need to have rest and you need to have quiet. Mm-hmm. You need silence. Oh, I know. I again. need stillness. So sometimes, so how does this work for our personalities? Well, you need silence. Your your mind is always going ninety miles an hour, and you it's really hard for you to stop thinking so that you can go to sleep. I need stillness. I I fidget and I keep, you know, wondering <laughs> yep. like what what is it I'm missing that I need stuff, to do, and I tinker around. and all this stuff, and and you you sometimes kind of laugh because as we try to like settle down and to go to bed is when I have to like, you know, keep moving and get everything. It's really hard. Yeah. I'm trying. Yep. (laughs) And so, so what, what Ginsburg is saying to you is, you know, uh, lay down the dishes, lay down, lay down, you know, picking the gray hairs out of your, Mm -hmm. your head or whatever. I mean, all these things that we panic about, sometimes we just need to rest. Mm -hmm. Now the reason though, so that's all great. I think it's really, really powerful. I think it's very uh, emotionally and spiritually important to get what he's saying here. But there's also something where he says, lay down God early on. Mm-hmm. And that pissed me off. I said, no, I'm not going to lay down God. Like, <laughs> like why, why would I do that? You have to lay, lay down God? Until I, when I, and then I realized how many things that I might put on God that aren't even correct. So it's, I need to lay down my version of God so that I can listen and, and, and hear for what is the truth. Yeah. Set aside your idols, set aside those contra uh, constructs. Then that's why I said, let those fragile constructs dash to pieces against the rock. And this is a long way around why I wanted to play the song because all throughout it, you're saying, well, is he just saying there's nothing there? There's just void, you know? No. He's saying, set your feet on the rock. So lay all these things down and set your feet on the rock. Now, he's not doing this as a Christian theologian, but let me, let me give you a Christian take on this. There is all of this theology that we fight about. Sometimes it's totally spot on. Sometimes it's, it's not. But we spend so much time yapping at each other. We spend so much time thinking that the, that the primary thing about our religion or our faith is about words, is about these, again, these, these constructs that we've, mm-hmm. we've got that are, even for Orthodox Lutherans, for instance, all on the way, uh, you know, like there's this concept in, in the 16th century that I really like of the theologia viatorum, the theology of the wayfaring stranger, the theology of the pilgrim. It's close. It's cl- and as we study more, we get closer and closer, but we recognize that our concepts and our language about this thing is always getting really, really close to the ultimate reality, but that our words can't put and the whole infinite reality perfectly into a sentence mm-hmm. or a paragraph or even a, even a book. And when we start to get defensive, sometimes we can stop listening and that will also have, we won't hear the truth. Right. Now, so this means we, we, we've got to spend a less, less time wasting our time. Uh, we, so this means we've got to spend less time 
kind of with what I think of as like a Dungeons and Dragons version mm. of Christian discourse. Right? Well, well, I am a uh, I'm a five point Calvinist. Well, that's all right. I'm an Eastern Orthodox, and we all we all get together. We pick almost like you know the color of our team. So we're we're all we're all in these different um, you know kind of teams, mm-hmm. and we're going to fight about you know which which of us has the right version. But none of us get shattered upon the rock. Mm. No, I'm not saying none of us do, but I'm saying that's very often the case. Mm-hmm. We're all sitting here fighting about something. You know, I'm 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 with this party or I'm with that party. And we we actually need to get shattered. Mm-hmm. But not by relativism or wishy-washiness or so that I can now be part of the liberal party or the progressive party. And then I'm going to talk a lot about that. And I'm going to show my talk is better than your fundamentalist talk. No, reality needs to to break in the pure light. Well, truth is bigger than all of that. Truth is infinite <laughs> and it is unwavering and it is, it is true. Right. And so what I'm saying with Stacy, what we're saying to the, to the dear listener is we can't tell you how to get to truth necessarily. We'll give you some tips. What we want to do is say, there are these principles that will help us get to truth. But we don't want to just give you the printout of what that looks like. And when you do, much to Paul's question originally, it is true that you're not able to really exercise sort of for yourself, like, what's right or wrong. If I'm, if I'm just handing it to somebody. If you're just saying, here, this is what it is. You can't internalize that. Right. And not in the same way. I mean, maybe some of it will strike a chord and you can internalize that part or that piece. Well, it's kind of like an algebra test in high school. You say the answer is C. Just remember the answer is C. You don't really know no. the answer. Right. right. <laughs> you just, you, uh, you've got the right letter, but th- that doesn't mean you know what that rock of truth is. Right? And, I, and I think, I think similarly, if somebody just told me what my personality type was, I'd be less inclined to want to explore it and dive deep and try to figure out more about what that means. Mm-hmm. But when I discover it for myself, mm-hmm. then I like, oh, yes, like this all comes together. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, somebody could point me in the right direction. But if they said, here's your personality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> here, here it is. <laughs> like, mm, <laughs> maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so now when, when going to Allen Ginsberg, because I just want to play it. Before we move forward, the Ginsburg song here, he's going to say, lay these things down. Mm-hmm. He's not saying renounce them. No. He's not saying hate them. These are all the things that make life beautiful. Your art, your music, your practice, talk about God. These are things, that's all we do. Mm-hmm. But every once in a while, we need to lay it down and just receive the ultimate. So that we can have God back. Because what's getting in the way very often for, for many of us spiritually is that our constructs about God are obscuring God. Yes. Our connection to God, our idols are getting in the way mm-hmm. of the I am, of the Logos, right. infinite, before all time. So here's, that's at least how we have appreciated lay and appropriated down, this song. Here it is. Lay down your mountain, lay down God, lay down, lay down your music. Love, lay down, lay down, lay down your hatred, lay yourself down, lay down, lay down your nation, lay your foot on the rock. 
lay down your whole creation lay your mind down lay down lay down your empire lay your whole world down lay down your soul down your bright body down your golden heavy crown lay down lay down your magic the alchemist lay it down here lay down your practice precisely lay down your wisdom And it's not, you know, you can't dance to it. <laughs> right, right. And it's, yeah, there's a time and a place for it, obviously. And and it, at night, I could imagine, yes, that is sort of the cadence. Maybe while I'm driving home from work, not so much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it might put me to sleep. I don't know. And if you're all jazzed up from a <laughs> concert, help, you know, yeah. if you're all jazzed up from a concert and you're, you're pumped and you can't go to sleep, you got to put that down. Because we're not only those things we do. Mm-hmm. We can just be. And we can also what we'll talk about next week, recognize that our performance doesn't determine our lovableness. Absolutely. We're loved apart from our art. But because we're loved, then we can dance and sing hallelujah. And create the art. Exactly. So here's where this has anything to do with Paul's question. The Enneagram, we trust in it because we checked it out and we found it to be true, kind of like Jesus saying that the sheep will hear my voice. Yes. When you listen for the the voice of the good shepherd or you lean against a rock and you know that there's something solid there, what you're doing is you're allowing truth to set you free. And there's so many times in which we're we're afraid and so forth of of truth. Now, in what way do you think, Stacy, people don't don't want to know the truth? Well, as we had had talked about when we had that very difficult conversation with our children and they told us some very hard things for us to hear, how much they love us, but it really pains them when they see us fighting or, and how our our children had told us that the things that, that are bothering us and our anxieties and, and, and even like some of the, I don't know, our, our, our stresses from work and church and all sorts of things that it was causing them stress and, and that it was rubbing off on them. And that made me really sad. Yeah. Because we realized like, Oh, we really, <laughs> I mean, we really should, we shouldn't already make some things that are going to be difficult for them harder mm-hmm. by rubbing off our own, you know, <laughs> stuff on, on, onto them. But it was a sign that our relationship was in a good place. That, that they, they could, could tell us. The hard things. And so it was really hard to look at how, in the ways that we've hurt them, you know, inadvertently or, you know, we're not, we're not, we didn't mean to. Mm-hmm. 
Do you, though, friends, do you want to know the truth about how you look in a bathing suit by just all of a sudden being on a big billboard in your underwear in front of Times Square? Maybe some of you do. I, I, I prefer not to. <laughs> I prefer not to, that's for sure. <laughs> or do you really want to uh, fully look in the mirror spiritually and emotionally and look at all the parts of you that, you know... That you, you often cover up with clothes and makeup and hair yeah. color. and <laughs> We hide so often. Mm-hmm. And sometimes... You know, depending on our life stories, sometimes we just don't want to know. Sometimes we don't know what, we don't want to know what our kids think. In other words, it could be kids, could be somebody else. Sometimes we don't want to know what our spouse really thinks. Mm -hmm. Think about how hard it is to say, I really want you to tell me what's up. I don't like, I don't like teaching evaluations. I hate them. And I, I don't mind actually getting feedback. I don't like reading it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't physically like the experience of hearing somebody's kind of virtual voice written down and then having to absorb those words in, that in an emotional. Because pain for you because then you feel like you've somehow done... Hurt them. You hurt them. You, you, you didn't do it right for them, right? Yeah. Like you, you, yeah, you didn't do them right. I've got a high enough self-image that... I feel pretty good as a professor. I do all right, you know, but I don't like the feeling of hearing that somebody was sad because I didn't do it right. You, like missed, I you missed the mark. I missed the mark, but I'm not, again, I'm not so worried about me in this case. I'm worried that they, they got by without yeah. needing or being able to get to the, the truth that they need to hear when they yeah. were in your class. I didn't do it right. Now, other people, you, dear listener, might have a different reason you don't want to hear the negative feedback, but we all have a hard time, I think, dealing with truth. Right. Sometimes, you know, you feel like it's too late to change it. Yeah. We've talked about that a little bit. And and running away from it just means that now you'll still be dealing with it the whole time, but there's still freedom even if there's not, even, it doesn't matter where you are in life. It is completely healing and it's a wonderful example to all of those uh, your loved ones yeah. around you. Terrifying, but healing. But now, here's how all this fits, fits with, again, with the question about inerrancy in the Bible and all this. We believe in the Enneagrams because they have the ring of truth and it, it seems to work. We also recognize the truths that we learn from our exploration of ourselves in the Enneagrams and our relationship because we say, aha, we've got this illumination of what's going on and we can kind of see how it fits together mm-hmm. and, it, and it works. Now, as you think about religious truth, friend, I want you to consider, just ask yourself right now, do you think that religious spiritual truth is true in that same sense of true, right? Like a rock, like Mm -hmm. gravity. The specific religious beliefs that you have, are you desperately trying to create some wish, some imaginary landscape? And if you are, does that give you a little bit of anxiety? Right. Is because, there peace? Is there peace mm-hmm. with with whatever that is? Do you feel that you can rest on that, lean on it? So here's the thing. I don't know where you're at, friends. You do your thing, man. You know, it's like you can't. I can't really do it for you. I can tell you this. As we get back from the break, there is something I want to talk to you about. A way in which there is a truth that I believe is almost absolutely certainly true. It 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 strikes you to the core of your being yeah. that it's undeniable and it really doesn't matter if you don't have to convince other people that that's what yeah. that is for you because you just know it. I want you to know it because it feels really great and it's it's very illuminating, right? But whatever it is, whether it's 
where you should, you know, hang out, who you should vote for, whom you should marry. See, I'm getting my grammar better there. You know, those questions, you need, I think, to empower yourself to trust in that sense that something's true or false. And, and kind of step back from everybody else telling you what's up. And just for a moment ask, what do I really think is going on here? Because when something's true, this is at least in my experience, when something's true, it may be surprising. It may be amazing. It may be miraculous. It may be unexpected. But when you find the truth, not only does it set you free, you can sense its solidity. You can sense its deep, eternal reality. And if you're not feeling that, you want to keep digging a little deeper into why that is. Why is it that that might not be the case? Now, to the question of inerrancy, this is the transition. If you ask a scientist, you know, I'm, I'm psychologist, generally people that are savvy and critical, in the good sense, critical thinkers, and you say, well, let me show you about the Enneagrams, one of the questions that rightly comes up is, where does this come from? And there are lots of, lots of ways in which people say it goes back, back to Pyth- Pythagoras. It has this ancient root, you know, and, and we mentioned this a little bit, but ultimately it's a, it's a relatively new thing. And the issue here is, just like we're looking at this question of inerrancy in, say, Christian circles, the inerrancy of the Bible in Christian circles, it's an interesting question. And in fact, at a scholarly level, it's a very important question. Where does this come from? What are the ancient roots to it? Who developed it in its mm-hmm. modern form? This is all really interesting. But that's a separate question from whether it, it and, works or it's true. Right, because it wouldn't matter if, if, it's, if it is true. It's true. It doesn't really matter when it came on board, when it, when it came into being. <laughs> There's a way in which you want to double check it. So this might feel good, but mm-hmm. maybe you're just totally deluded about this the way some people are, let's say, about horoscopes, where you can write a horoscope. But it could be ancient and still deluded. Where you could write a horoscope and it will sound good to everybody, mm-hmm. right? Anybody who reads it, mm-hmm. you say, oh, that's mm-hmm. right. You know? <laughs> Fortune cookies. So there are sometimes when there are psychological things at play that make us think something is working when it's not really working. Mm-hmm. But even then, it's you know maybe playing into our our own subconscious, like a Rorschach test, you know. But regardless of that, I think the Enneagrams have something more than that that will reveal themselves as you, as you look into it and you try it out. This is in the, in the field of, say, uh, philosophy of science, fecundity. Does this theory produce expected results? Is this something that if you accept this, will produce what you expect in the future when you run new experiments or you mm-hmm. dig deeper or something like this in right. bold, the truth is always color. freeing. It, yeah. There may be some pain to get there, but it's always freeing and almost on in, the other side. Otherwise it's not truth. It's, it, it's not truth. If it, you, if you mm-hmm. can't come out on the other side of it and breathe deep. Now how this fits with the Bible, we're going to get to after the break, stick with us because now we're going to get into a little bit more depth about some technicalities, if that's your thing. If you want to learn more, be right back. So 
Welcome back, everybody. We have seven points here we're going to break down for you that address the tricky issues of inerrancy and how that relates to religious education. So first of all, Jeff, uh, the first point is we don't have the autographs of the Bible. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, we said at the beginning that the autographs are those original documents that would have been written by prophets or the apostles. These are things that would have been either in their own hand or that of a scribe. Mm. We have, and this is... This so is, you're saying so the origin, absolute originals we do not have. Right. So if you believe the, the idea that, that, the, that the Bible's inerrant, you're really going to start with that. But you've got to then recognize that... You don't have that. No. And we have a lot of really strong manuscript evidence for our purposes of reconstructing the texts that go into the Bible. And and sometimes, you know, it gets even better and better as we find older manuscripts, more reliable manuscripts, more complete manuscripts, and in different languages sometimes, from different regions of the world. We put these together. Now, if you... If you go to, let's say, a, even a conservative translation of the Bible, like the national, I'm sorry, uh, like the NIV, the New International Version, or even a more conservative ESV, the English Standard Version, you'll still find evidence that this translation that you've got in your hands is paying attention to a kind of biblical criticism that's that's really dealing with the different manuscripts, these pieces of papyrus and, and codices that we have from the centuries. And as we compare them, scholars try to create the most authentic, reliable approximation of what the autographs were. That said, there it's are... It's still an approximation. It's an approximation. Now, the, even if you're an agnostic or an atheist, non-Christian, whatever... There's still a very strong argument to say that whatever these people thought is accurately being passed down to us. Mm-hmm. Prophets to St. Paul, while there's some variance in the way that it's recorded, there's a, there's a pretty good consistency. It's surprisingly helpful for us to be able to say, this is what the first church thought, or you know, the early church thought, this is what ancient Israel believed at this time in history and so forth. So... There's a difference between saying the Bible is true in the inspired sense, that God is speaking through it, and saying that it's reliable in terms of its antiquity and the reliability of the manuscripts that we have. But, again, sometimes there will be little changes. For instance, it might say Christ Jesus, or it could say Jesus Christ, and then sometimes there are even whole chunks of of, of passage, say, that might have not been in the oldest and best manuscripts. Unfortunately, one of my favorite stories in the New Testament is not attested by the oldest and best manuscripts, and that's the story of the woman caught in adultery. Mm. Now, it's entirely possible that this is a tradition that everybody knew, that eventually they had to put it in somewhere, so they stuck it in the Gospel of Matthew, whatever. But if you go to, again, any conservative Bible, you'll still see brackets and you'll see footnotes that say this section was not in the oldest and best manuscripts. But again, if you believe in inerrancy, you still have to recognize that you've got this first little problem of saying uh, that you don't have it as if it was kind of the very first person registered mail. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) It doesn't mean that you should freak out about this if you're even a, you know, conservative Christian who really wants to have this thing be pretty solid and stable. It's just to say that there's partly, uh, 
It's to say that there's a little bit of fun involved here of getting to it, mm-hmm. you know, so that, that scholarship, that's what makes biblical scholarship interesting is you're, you're trying to uncover this. You're trying to get as close as you can. And the reason that's important is because it gives that first step for a, a student, that little piece that says, there's something of you that's involved here. You're going to get into this process of wrestling with these texts mm-hmm. first in terms of saying, what did they actually say? in a very straightforward way. That brings us to the second point here where I think, uh, where it mentions editors sometimes attempted to fix the Bible with minor alterations or interpolations. Now, interpolations here is I-N-T-E-R-P-O-L-A-T-I-O-N-S. But interpolations here are where sometimes we think maybe somebody wrote, wrote down a comment in the column mm. and it got, incorporated into the text. So imagine if you found an ancient study Bible and you couldn't really tell whether a footnote was in the original or was just... Or somebody that read it after. Yeah, just like Mm -hmm. a handwritten note to help clarify something. Let me just give you an example. Uh, A really interesting one is from Acts. So could you read Acts 8 from verse 36 to 38? This is the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said... Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. The eunuch answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. Now, if you go into your your Bible, and you look up Acts 8, you probably won't see in the main paragraph, verse 37. Verse 37 probably wasn't in the original. And that part was, Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. The eunuch answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So that's him professing his faith there. Right. So instead it went from, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? And then he gave the orders to stop the chariot and they baptized him. Right. Now, it might be entirely true that that was implied. That conversation happened. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. But there's no reason in the early texts to think that that's the way it went down. It was, hey, what's stopping me from getting baptized? So then they jumped down and got, you know, you got baptized. Mm-hmm. Now, in this case, it seems kind of innocuous, especially if you believe that to get baptized, you should make a profession of faith. Mm-hmm. This certainly makes a lot of sense if you're a Baptist. You know, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> that you've got to you've got to have the right profession. And in fact, to be fair, the Western Church, Eastern Church, they will say this: you've mm-hmm. got to be catechized you know, as an adult. If you're going to be an adult, you're going to be catechized. That is, you're going to be taught what the faith is, and then you're going to make a profession of faith. And if you believe, and watch this: if you believe with all your heart. Mm-hmm. So if you believe with all your heart, then you can be baptized. And that's what's hard. Like, how do I know that I believed with <laughs> yeah. all my heart, you know? I mean, yeah. I guess truth, you know the truth. And so, yeah. Can I, mean, I have faith like a mustard seed? <laughs> what's going on here? But then the other thing is... But you that, always, it leaves room for doubt of whether you've right. properly done that. But the thing here is, somebody said, wait a minute, you can't just get baptized without professing the faith, so we need to insert this. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's, that's an example of interpolation. Now, if you're a conservative Christian, you don't need to just go toss your Bible into the fire now. Like, oh, no, I can't trust <laughs> no. this thing. No, but it's just the, and this doesn't tend, unless you're, you know, if you're a conversionist or you're Baptist, this will be very important for the nature of baptism. For others, it won't be as important. Some, however, are even more controversial. I'm not saying what to do with that. 
situation here at these texts. I am saying that what's not good is for me to say, or for me to hear, don't ask that question. You're bad for asking the question. You're bad for looking into that research. You're bad for, for disagreeing with my interpretation. And, and this is what we're getting to in many ways, is the authoritarian style of teaching is what's dangerous. Come to the conclusion that you believe to be true. Encourage people to find their way to the truth the way you see it. But to tell somebody that they're immoral for reading these texts in a different way, or brush, given or evidence. even brushing certain things under the rug and not right. addressing just makes it more complicated for people later. And I ask you, friends, do you really believe it? And do you, right? want, and do you want them wrestling with it in front of you yeah. or, you know, with your, with their atheist philosophy professor? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And this is really, this is really part of it because in many ways, when students get to face these interesting, but sometimes emotionally and psychologically and theologically challenging textual questions, and they're now doing it for the first time, they feel like they've been duped. In, in this question of the inerrancy of the Bible, if it's something that you're just demanding people accept without really wrestling through it, it ends up backfiring horrendously. And I have had so many students over the years who started with a very deep commitment to inerrancy as they hit some little bump in the road, some very small textual issue. It sometimes... It undermines almost the whole foundation. Shattered the whole thing. Yeah. Kind of like when you take... Have you ever seen Mr. Wizard do this? He took a... Remember Mr. Wizard? He's like Bill Nye, Bill Nye the science guy for old people like mm. me. All right. So he would take this like a, like a racquetball. He would dip it in liquid nitrogen and he would throw it against a wall and it would shatter. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. That's what's going on when you have this contrived version of the defense of inerrancy, or you have a version that refuses to really look at the nuances of manuscripts and, and, and other kind of comparative work when you put texts against each other. If you've got a very rigid version of it, it's very easy for somebody's faith in the whole thing to just shatter, and they kind of lose a sense that any of it is valuable to them. Let's keep going. All right. Point three. Even those who affirm inerrancy have to face the problem of apparent contradiction. An inerrantist prof in my undergraduate work, Rod Rosenblatt, I remember he said that sometimes people will stand up and say, hey, look, there's no, there are no contradictions in the Bible. It's perfectly easy to, to make this claim. And even though Rod affirmed inerrancy and was saying that ultimately these things are resolvable, he thought that was, he told us all, and I thought that was very helpful, that, that that's a very dangerous thing to say. Because when you say it, then all of a sudden people start putting their hands up if they've, if they've read the texts and mm -hmm. say, well, what about this and this? And that sense that you've kind of been set up for failure mm. as a professor, as a youth worker, as a, as a pastor. What I mean by setting up for failure is very often you can say, well, there's no contradictions here, so I don't have to worry about it. Mm -hmm. Then a high school student or a freshman in college comes to you with these, you don't know how to explain these texts, it. And you, then you feel like you've been deceived yourself mm -hmm. or the student feels that you're deceiving them or just not taking their question seriously. Right. And that's damaging psychologically and intellectually. So let me just give you an, a couple examples. I, I remember one of my, one of my very successful undergrads went on and did, and is doing some, some grad work and ran into Stanley Hauerwas. Stanley Hauerwas 
one of the most famous and influential theologians in the United States. And Hauerwas said that this student was lacking one thing. He said, for you to really get good as a theologian, a professional theologian, you're going to need to do more work in thinking through the synoptic problem. Now, the synoptic problem is this situation where if you look at these parallel texts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that's the synoptic gospels, mm-hmm. means they're seen together, they're all kind of tracking together. If you want to harmonize those, and then if you throw in John, John's <laughs> very different, that, that, that complicates it even more, yeah. yeah. But, but Hauerwas, when he talks about, well, but the synoptic problem is that there are some passages that are slightly different, and it, and it can be from something very incidental to something very important. For instance, the, the accounts of the resurrection. I once, so each of the resurrection accounts in these Gospels has a slightly different take. Go ahead and maybe share those four things that stand out. So number one, in the Synoptic Gospels, Mary Magdalene and other women go to the tomb. In John's account, Mary Magdalene goes alone. Number two, in Matthew, Jesus appears to the women before they tell the disciples. In John, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene first. Number three, in Matthew and Mark, one angel appears. In Luke and John, there are two angels. And number four, in Matthew, the the women tell no one of what they had seen. Now. People are already sharpening their sabers, baring their teeth. They're ready to go. Those are facts. Now, I don't know what to do with those facts. I do know that there are people that have harmonized the Gospels. Classically, for instance, an easy one to remember, is that if, if, um, if there's, in Matthew and Mark, there's one angel, in Luke and John, there's two angels, that's fine. It's not a logical contradiction. Take a shot at how could you harmonize two angels and one angel. So just because there are two angels, it doesn't necessarily mean that you'd have to mention that there are two angels. There might've been a thousand angels hiding out in the pantry (laughs) or dancing on the head of a pin, (laughs) as it were. Now you can go online and you can look up Bible difficulties and how to resolve them. Mm -hmm. And it can be done. Mm -hmm. Even though people will misunderstand what I'm trying to do here, I need to make this very clear, dear listener. What I'm saying is I have had students in tears in my office because they were given a simplistic answer to these great difficulties. If you have a simplistic answer that's, that's contorted, that's kind of backing into it from the perspective of, of course, it has to be something that you can harmonize. It just as an, at an intellectual level, at a, at a philosophical level, is a dangerous move. And what I mean by this is you look at this and you say, yeah, sure, it's not logically contradictory to have two and one. But your answer is not based on any evidence. Your answer is just a creative way of resolving the conflict, of harmonizing this thing. Mm -hmm. But you have to do something to say, squish them together. Mm -hmm. What this does, though, what it it does when you tell somebody, this looks hard, but no, it's really simple. And and I guess this is what I'm saying. When I was was a young evangelical scholar, I was my first semester in, in college. I went to Biola, very conservative. I only went for one semester, but it was a very, you know, very conservative evangelical school. I'm studying biblical studies. And the problem was very often I would get a short paragraph answer to a textual problem that would seem to me to require a lot more. So it was an oversimplistic, oversimplistic answer to a real question you were wrestling with. That shook my faith more than the synoptic problem. 
Another example, there was actually a student I had that left the church over different accounts of the triumphal entry. This is when Jesus comes in to Jerusalem. <laughs> one, one thought that comes to mind, um, to bring it down to earth a little bit, we were just talking with, with some friends of ours, and they were talking about how they have grandchildren that came from, or recently have moved here from Australia. Yeah. And she had, the you know, basically the the grandson had asked her for a biscuit and what he was asking for wasn't the american version of a biscuit he was asking for a cookie he didn't want biscuits and gravy (laughs) but a sweet cookie if you don't like there's a way in which there can be confusion there so you know is it a biscuit is it the american biscuit Mm -hmm. or is it actual you know the cookie that you're talking about and if you're anyway if you want to try to get to the the truth of the matter Mm mm-hmm the word might need to be changed in order for me to understand, you know, what he's asking for. Mm-hmm. Now, if you go into a study Bible that's, let's say, in an inerrantist study Bible, and you look at the footnotes, I'm thinking, mm, I remember the New Geneva Study Bible. This is what I was holding in my hands when I was first dealing with this. And they said, well, it's, you know, it's very simple. You know, they got two animals. And the one text only mentions the one animal. It, it just seemed to me at the time very unlikely that they would that they would have two animals that there was somewhere along the line somebody was confused mm-hmm. right now we'll get to what to do with again we'll get to what to do with this but it doesn't matter it might turn out that there were two animals right but the ease with which somebody just jumped into that to preserve an yeah. a priori or a prior to experience assumption that these are not going to be in any error in this way, in this particular way, is what led to something that seemed, again, very contrived. And once it seemed contrived, I had two options. One, to check my critical mind at the door, mm-hmm. or start to be skeptical about the people that were teaching me. Mm-hmm. And both of those are kind of a bummer. One leads you to a lack of trust in the authenticity of the conversation, which I enjoy. I like, I love studying this stuff, but now I don't really trust that we're studying it the way we study other things. Mm. When we say it's true, what do we mean by true? Cause now I don't, I don't think the word means what you think the word means. You're not using it the way, what's that line? Inconceivable. You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Again, what we're saying on the show isn't that we should be just focused on these things. I think the fact is we shouldn't focus on this at all. But at the same time, to ignore it, to just dismiss it so that our lives are easier and that we can just tell people to shut up and and believe what we're telling them is detrimental to the scholarly mind, to the intellectual virtues, to critical thinking, and to people really getting involved and believing something because they've understood it Mm -hmm. rather than they just were told it. It's not all immediately obvious. That's all I'm trying to say. Biblical scholarship, no matter what, you know, whether you're progressive or an old-timey Bible thumper, requires nuanced interpretation, requires diligent contemplation and thought, research, crack open a, a commentary. And why do I say this? Again, I'm not saying this to try to disrupt your sense of stability and faith. I'm saying that I'm looking out, I'm trying to look out for young people. And I don't think you need to wait until you're in seminary to start to deal with these things. I think everybody needs to be comfortable with really just facing all the evidence and having fun with it and learning what we can learn and growing and finding, and get this, finding the truth. Because get this, if you're trying to defend the truth, 
I don't trust that you're really talking about truth. Going back to what we said about gravity. Mm-hmm. Gravity takes care of itself, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So if you're open and you really believe in this thing, then you can trust that it will handle itself. You're not responsible to kind of like a codependent spouse explain away God's weirdness, <laughs> right? <laughs> or perceived weirdness. Perceived weirdness, right? Like that's what we're saying here is not here to destroy your confidence in the Bible. We're not trying to tell you how to interpret the Bible. We're saying, rather, that we need to point out that whatever your view is related to biblical inspiration, inerrancy, infallibility, interpreting parts of the text are much more complicated than you might have expected before you cracked it open. Mm -hmm. And this means to use the Bible as a weapon without any nuance or reflection is unwise, unhealthy, and it is a tool used to control people. That's the thing. And I want to go back, go back to what the question was about, about uh, the flood. Okay? Mm. Regardless of whether you see it as mythical or absolutely factual, to say to somebody, who, especially a kid, who says, you know, I, I got a problem with this. I find this morally problematic. And to say, shut up and accept it because God can do whatever the heck God wants to do. That move is the only reason we have this podcast episode today. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the punchline I'm trying to get you to, friends. And we've got other stuff here. <laughs> Don't mm-hmm. go anywhere. But you see, if you tell people, believe it or else, believe it even though it seems weird, believe it even though it seems contradictory to other passages, believe it even though it seems immoral, believe it because I'm telling you to, believe it because of power, believe it because of fear, That is where we get into trouble. And that's where we all of a sudden find ourselves creating young people that are unable to be reflective and safe and have their own ability to develop thought. There's another problem here. And that is, you know, Paul says things about men and women's hair and and the hair length and the angels watching it. I remember when I was a kid, this guy, Bill Gothard said, see, here's a great example. And it means that that you can't have long hair and the church tried to get me to cut my hair so that I would be a good witness for Jesus. Mm-hmm. Right now, this is, I think maybe where I should have started to get people to kind of be on our side here because <laughs> they probably could get this. It's, it's not absolute, right? It's not absolute that you shouldn't have long hair mm. in, in the Bible. Like Samson was supposed to have long hair. It was bad for Samson not to have long hair. Right. But apparently in some cultural context, it would be bad to have long hair and show up to church if you're a dude mm-hmm. and vice versa. If you had like, you know, a nice little bob cut, you know, so, so even if you find something in the Bible, and this is the key thing that when the question came up about infallibility, I realized what it usually is, is it's about the power of the pastor. The pastor saying, I know what the Bible says. You don't. The Bible is simple. It's, it's, it's black and white. I'm just going to point to the verse. It says, don't have long hair. You've got long hair and I'm judging you. And you're bypassing all this other interesting cultural stuff. And there are a variety of ways in which this happens where people use the Bible to clobber other people. And they, they clobber other people with a great sense of confidence, but it's a false confidence in, in the sense that they're, um, they're pointing to, first of all, a translation. Mm-hmm. They're pointing to a translation based on these multiple manuscripts and they're pointing to something that has a whole set of contextual cultural issues in play. So they should at least explain all of this. They should at least give their answers. And it's just like the way you should teach a kid about 
anything. You, you want to do as much explanation and interaction with them as you're trying to help them come to the truth. Not just what you want them to do or think, but to come to the truth. Point number four, the deductive argument for biblical inerrancy is philosophically flawed and psychologically dangerous. Now, there are basically two ways that people have defended this idea that the Bible is inerrant. One is deductive. And deduction is really not, it's, a, it's an argument that leads to certainty. Deduction in, in philosophy and in logic is if you have premises that are true, then the conclusion must be true. All men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. If you accept those first two statements, you have to accept the third. Right, so it's mm, yes, it's rational, but it's not. I remember all this? This is bringing me back. To my <laughs> that's right. It's not. It's not asking you to look at external evidence in the world. It's not looking to experience data, scientific research. It's something that you could do just from the the comfort of your chair in your office. Mm-hmm. Right now. So there's the deductive argument and there's the inductive argument. The inductive argument first looks at the evidence and then comes to a general conclusion. Deduction works from um, general principles and applies them to particular situations. Induction starts with particulars and then generalizes and draws larger conclusions. Now, B.B. Warfield, the old Princeton theologian, uh, was uh, was an advocate of the inductive approach. What he would do is he would look at historical arguments and and uh, how the the text might line up with archaeology what we know about the classical world that sort of thing and he said look as you look at this it really rings true with what we know from other sources related to the ancient world it seems to have all these other marks of authenticity and and so forth right so that would be that older way that most people today don't don't tend to think about the deductive argument is this idea and it's it it, many people that i i care about use this and i'm just saying i think it's very problematic as a as a philosophical move what's the what's the problem the problem is saying that god is absolute truth the bible is god's word therefore since god can't lie I mean, I'm not putting this into a syllogism, but since God can't lie and the Bible is God's word, then the Bible has to be inerrant. It's what we call an a priori. You have this a priori that is mm-hmm. before you experience the world, I'm already going to tell you that it's inerrant. Mm-hmm. And therefore, it doesn't matter. For somebody who believes in inerrancy a priori or believes in the deductive argument, there's almost nothing that I could give them that would cause them to question their belief in inerrancy. And it's pretty easy to find ways to synthesize things, to, mm-hmm. to, to bring things together. I mean, it takes some work, right? right. But, but if you have a conspiracy theory, you know, like you believe in the flat earth or something, there is evidence that might pose a problem for your belief, but there's often a way that you could bring in some other principles to explain it away. But this is what William of Ockham complained about when he talks about the so-called Occam's razor. He says, don't, don't have a theory that requires a bunch of extra hypotheses mm-hmm. to, to make it work. Right. right? All this the simpler, other... The simplest way is... Yes, the simplest explanation is usually the best. In any case, this is... Of all the things that, that I wanted to, to say on this episode, I, I think this, to me, is one of the most important. That even though 
respected people, people that I care about, you use the deductive argument. I think this is really dangerous because what you're saying is before we even look at the text, I'm already assuming that it's inerrant. Mm. So it it gives you the sense that people aren't really dealing with You're not wrestling material. with it for not, real. No. Because you've already made your decision before you've ever even looked into you it. You won the game before you started playing. And I think once you get to that point, when you're especially as we teach this way to students, I think that is one of the more destructive things for their own sense of being able to read texts and wrestle with them and make sense of them. So point five, we need to take the genre of a biblical text into account. Now, genre is the, the type. You, we know what genre is. Mm-hmm. You've got a Western, mm-hmm. you've got a comedy, you've got a rom-com, you've got a horror movie. What, what are we looking at here? Assessment of what the text is trying to do. Song of Solomon. What's it trying to do? Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, the Gospels. What are they trying to do? Mm-hmm. Right? Now, one of the things that's interesting is I believe that Luke, the Gospel of Luke, is trying to do history. And this is important. Luke is trying to do history, so he might be right or wrong about history. But if he's wrong, that's a problem, right? Right. Now look at Ecclesiastes. What's Ecclesiastes trying to do? I would argue that Ecclesiastes is wrestling with those existential problems of life and faith and questions, and it's beautiful. It's one of my favorite texts. But if you read, Stacy Ecclesiastes three eighteen to 20, that'll help me to explain something that, that probably is important to all of us. I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. So here's this guy writing a biblical text, a text that, conservative evangelicals will say is inspired and some will say it's inerrant. But if I were to just come into your place of worship and talk to your kids and say, Hey everybody, uh, you guys are going to die. You're going to die like little bunny rabbits. And we're not sure if uh, we don't just turn to dust. Well, and so that's it's all that. meaningless, right? Meaningless. Oh, yeah. Surprise. By the way, everything's meaningless. I forgot to mention, <laughs> in addition to you dying someday, you and the animals will all will have this meaningless existence, and then you will die, and we're not sure if you have an afterlife. It's pretty bleak. It's pretty bleak. It's pretty honest, in the sense that here's somebody who seems to be asking this question. Now, the reason I say this is, when we're talking about the, the question of genre, saying, well, if this is somebody trying to relate a historical statement of Jesus, that's going to be... <laughs> that's a whole different that's matter. a whole different matter <laughs> from somebody reflecting on, essentially, a whole life of philosophical study and religious study. That's why I like Ecclesiastes, because he's got all sorts of stuff going on in there. Mm-hmm, right? There's just a time and a season for everything, right? What's, well, that's the exact same chapter where he says this, but if... The Bible includes somebody wrestling with stuff like this. Why can't we let people that we teach in churches and in Christian parochial schools and church-related colleges, why can't we let that just sit for a moment? Why can't we say, you know, um, what do you think about that 
Is it possible that life's meaningless? Is it possible we're like the animals? That question invites them to contemplate and to engage instead of just, you know, receiving the the stuff that, that comes from the teacher. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And again, the Proverbs are giving you wisdom. Ecclesiastes is anti-wisdom. Right. And not knowing the difference between those two is going to give you a different sense of how this plays into the faith as a whole. If you were to say that that's inerrant, in what way is it inerrant? Now, you could try to twist it around to, to make it seem like he's not questioning this sense of the afterlife. Or you can let it rest and say, what if the Holy Spirit includes this text in the canon of Scripture so that it gives us permission to have these thoughts, to have these ponderings, to wait for the answer? Mm-hmm. I think that's much more beautiful than having the, the Bible be like, you know, like a like a, a Subaru manual, you know, <laughs> what is the meaning of oil changes, mm-hmm. you know, 5W30. You know what I'm saying? You, you've got the question, you've got the answer, and it's very straightforward, right? Right. Point six. William of Ockham noted that applying moral teachings of the Bible is incredibly difficult, and so he must rely on biblically informed virtues, not rules. This comes from Augie, my oldest, uh, my oldest son's research into William of Ockham. In his philosophy, and we will get to this in more depth at some other point, but it, it blew my mind because I, of course, am, am a big fan of virtue ethics, and I'm, I'm interested in virtue ethics not because I'm a Thomist, that is, I don't follow Thomas Aquinas, interested in this idea of, of virtue meriting God's love or something. That's not my game. What I'm interested in is the way in which, because ethical life is so complicated, and because it depends so much on context and all sorts of other factors that go into any situation. It's much better for us to focus on the kind of character that we want, the kind of people that we want to be, and then apply that to a context. And this is precisely what Occam thought. Let me just give you one example. Leveret marriage. In the Old Testament, there is one guy named Onan who gets killed, essentially. God kills him because he doesn't impregnate his dead brother's wife. Mm. Okay? So his, his brother dies. He is supposed to, and this is very common in, in, in some parts of the world, where you That's want you to... Ch- you carry in what, his legacy for him, right? Yes. Because he can't do that. That's the idea. You preserve his name and his legacy and his line so that he is remembered. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a, a way in which some of these ancient Israelites seem to have thought about their longevity after the grave, you mm. see. It was very important to them, their name. And yet there's other places where it seems that you're not supposed to do that. And this was such a problem that it, it came to a head really in the English Reformation because Henry VIII thought at one point that he was cursed because he was married to his brother's widow. And so he wanted to get a divorce. This is the whole this is the whole start of the English Reformation, that he wasn't sure. And they, Henry VIII brought a bunch of biblical scholars to, together to be able to help him resolve these two seemingly conflicting parts of the Old Testament. And what Occam thought wasn't that the Bible was false or that there was any problem here, but he thought that the part of the thing that was going on is that ethical statements from God, essentially in, in the Bible, when God says to do something, it doesn't mean that this is apl- applicable to all times and places. So it's contextual. And it changes sometimes for different eras. So, for instance, 
I really subscribe to the idea that ancient Israel was not supposed to eat pork has a lot to do with the cults of human sacrifice. And it's speculative, but I, I think it's a very strong argument that the reason that people would sacrifice pigs is because it, it would be a... not like humans, right? They would like scream like babies. So if you were into that Molech stuff where you're sacrificing your children in the fire, if you could trick the gods, they seem to be kind of up there in the sky or somewhere, right? If you can trick the gods into thinking that you sacrificed your child, you would get all the magic of sacrificing your child without having to give up your child. Mm. And whenever you sacrificed an animal, you know, this would be something that then people would end up dividing up and eating. So to eat pork would be to eat something sacrificed to Molech or a, a underworld deity like Molech. It was a, a cruel religion. Now, I especially like that because I think that's pretty pretty groovy because that means that what's what's behind the pork isn't that God really cares if you have a ham and cheese sandwich. But rather that the that the people of God were trying to emphasize a certain kind of uh, loving and kind religion over the human uh, atrocity of sacrificing children. And so pork was related to that world. Right. So you're not going to be part of the world. Right. right. Now, I'm not sure that's true, but let's just assume it's true for the for the sake of the argument here. Today, since pork has nothing to do with that, you might say, well, pork isn't going to be problematic in the way it would have been for them. Right? And that makes sense. And what I'm going to say is that it was wrong to eat pork then. Let me give you an example. There's nothing wrong with making the okay sign. You know the okay sign mm-hmm. where you put your, your thumb yeah, and yeah. your index <laughs> finger together and your three fingers up? Fingers Do you know what that means now in, in, in pop culture? I don't. It's been appropriated by white nationalists and neo-Nazis as a way to troll folks and they will make that sign as a secret signal that they are essentially racist, that they're, that they're white nationalists, hmm. that, they, that they subscribe to this ideology. And sometimes you'll see cops getting in trouble for doing it. There was one time, I think, where an amusement park mascot, you know, somebody dressed up was making that over a mixed-race child. And it's a way for them to secretly show their hatred and, and racism. So in this sense, what, what Ockham would say is, it is not absolutely wrong to make the okay, the okay symbol, but it's most definitely wrong in this particular case. So what we tend to want to do is educate kids and ourselves by saying, all right, here's the rules. Don't Never. do the okay sign. <laughs> no okay sign. No, that's not the answer. The answer is to love your neighbor as yourself. So if the okay sign means everything's going to be okay, then make the okay sign. If the okay sign means I forgive you and I love you, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> if the okay sign means I'm a racist and bigot and I hate you, that's, that's a sin, right? So wh- why am I saying this? Because even if you have this belief in inerrancy, you got to be extra careful not to take this inerrant text that you believe in and apply it in an unsophisticated way to all times and places, mm-hmm. right? Now, sometimes there may be things that are universally true, right? But... You've got to be very careful about this. And here's what I'm trying to say. Inerrancy sometimes for people means bypassing that, that deep conversation about what's at play here. Why is this biblical teaching important? And what's it trying to get you to? Now, what Occam did believe is the Bible is pretty clear about the kind of character that we should have. We should love justice and mercy. 
We saw that. We should have faith, hope, and love. And these are the, these are the things that are, that are at stake. Jesus says, you, you, you're spending all your time, Pharisees. You're missing the point. You're missing the point. You're, 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 you're divvying up the mint, dill, and cumin, and you're, and you're not paying attention to what you should have been paying attention to. And which the reason is, behind yeah. it all. And what kind of character you want. Last one. Finally, often chest pounding, and and you okay, and you've also kind of alluded to this point, but mm. I think this is super important that we drive. It's this the conclusion. One home, yeah. So often, chest pounding about inerrancy is really about authoritarian education. That's right, and what again, what it's really doing is taking away that actual respect for these ancient texts to to teach us, to shatter us, to transform us to challenge us, to, to scare us, I don't know, whatever, whatever they're supposed to do, letting them just wash over us is what we need to be doing. Instead, what we do is we want to contain it. We want to take the ocean and, and, and bottle it up and sell it and mm-hmm. have it and it makes it safe. But this is, friends, what we simply cannot abide. Because, again, whether you hold to an inerrant Bible or you don't believe the Bible at all, if you are bypassing that critical conversation about these important matters and these texts with young people, it will backfire. It will change the way they see truth itself. It will make them unable sometimes to be discerning in other matters altogether different from the Bible because they've learned not to respect their own minds and their eyes and their senses and their intuitions. Instead, they're just listening to what people tell them to think. Another way of saying this is, the reason I wanted to get into this tricky waters is because I think this is at the root of a lot of it, that inerrancy isn't about, for many people, trusting something outside of themselves. Because mm-hmm. that's what I, I alluded to at the very beginning of the cold open, that there's a positive way of going about this. The world seems to say one thing, that success matters, that power matters, that transaction is the way to go, that conditional love is the way to go. And the Bible says unconditional love, love your enemy as yourself, bless those who persecute you. There's something beautiful to this world. The world is a gift mm-hmm. that we are beloved. We are to care about each other, that the universe is beautiful as a gift. These are things that are unfailingly true. And more importantly, there are things that when we read Jesus, we hear this and we hear the voice of the good shepherd. And I say this at an emotional existential level and at a very real level illuminates the world and is also most definitely true. I believe that what Jesus teaches is astoundingly true. And really this whole podcast is about this rediscovery after getting through all of this other like D and D these, these, these petty squabbles about side issues, mm-hmm. getting to the, the, the truth. And when I get to the truth, I say, Oh boy, it's so much more beautiful than I ever imagined and transformative. And it blows you away. And we're reading it more. Yeah. Because we are not afraid to try to defend it. In other words, like, I don't want to look into some of those passages because I, I, don't, I don't know what I'm going to do with it. Right. So we've been talking a lot here. And, and again, there's, it, all this stuff is so complicated. And there's so many voices and noises all around us. We, you know, the world is constantly telling us all these things to worry about. There's this verse where Jesus says in Matthew six thirty four, Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble 
of its own. And that, dear friends, is what I hold on to as my rock. When I hear the world and it tells me I need to be caring about success or the way I look or how good our kids are, I, I realize that 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 stuff, that's not what matters. What matters is what's right here before me. And and I don't need to make up extra things to worry about. And I hope that you can see and feel and hear this deep truth in these words where Jesus tells us not to worry. We don't need to worry, friends. We just need to be right here where you are right now, enjoying the people in front of you, enjoying what you're doing. And I just I just hope that you can feel that deep, deep peace. And don't worry, friends. We got this. Thank you so much, friends, for joining us for this episode of the Protect Your Noggin podcast. You want to join in on the conversation? We'd love to respond to your questions or comments on a future show. You can record a message by going to protectyournoggin.org and clicking on the blue voice message button. And don't worry about getting it perfect since you'll have five minutes and a chance to preview your message before sending. You can also send an email if you're not comfortable with leaving a voice message. Please also follow us on Twitter at the PYNP and rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this show of any help, uh, why not share it with a friend? Until next time, peace upon peace, friends. But he said that wasn't any letter. He said that was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? Perhaps because you found this letter low too much.